0: Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, God willing, and the creek don't rise, as Tennessee Ernie used to say, of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when almost anything can happen. And it used to be, as I've said so many times now, confined to this brief block of time. in the middle of the night in some time zones. And now it seems to be taking place 24 hours and seven days a week. So welcome, everyone. Welcome. Uh, Tonight we have a very special show. We may have some uh, technological problems in the background. They always seem to bedevil us. We cannot seem to escape from the technological problems. Anyway, um, what we're going to talk about tonight is something so remarkable we have passed a threshold and no i'm not talking about the indictment of the 45th president of the united states i'm talking about our discussion tonight of what do the chinese really know about the moon because they know a lot and we're going to go through some of the details tonight including some of the really interesting images they've been giving us for the last several years regarding what they've been photographing what they've been examining, both from orbit and from the surface. And all it takes to make a discovery kind of go away is if nobody talks about it, if nobody officially announces it. Well, the Chinese know what we have been discussing. We now know because of the breakthrough of the South Korean mission, the Dinuri mission, that the South Koreans know what we've been talking about. And they're apparently sharing data with the Chinese, as we're going to uh, go into a little later in the morning. But be that as it may, um, we have a really packed show. So let me start with uh, kind of a couple of clips of news at the top of the show here. Um, I'd like to start out with what we're going to talk about in a much more, shall we say, extensive manner tomorrow night. Item number one, um, the president of the United States, the ex-president, 45, Donald J. Trump, has been indicted for the first time ever in a criminal um, uh, charge. And given the fact that we're operating under the U.S. Constitution, he, of course, as any other indicted um, individual, is innocent until proven guilty. What's going to be interesting about all this is, and we're going to talk about this, At great lengths tomorrow night with uh, a number of interesting people, including our citizen historian Marvin Jones, who has turned up some really interesting things from the founders, from the Federalist Papers, from the Constitution itself, etc., etc. So we're going to go into the whole uh, presidential indictment thing, which has never happened in 246 years of the United States in existence, the indictment of a current or former president has never happened in terms of criminal liability. So we're about to enter some very unexplored territory and we will get into the details and some of the surprises that this is now uh, ushering in tomorrow night. Item number two, there are at least 21 dead after another series of tornadoes raked the uh, Midwest and the South, particularly in Arkansas uh, in Little Rock, and in uh i think there's one death in illinois that's item number two the reason that's posted is because part of what we're going to talk about tonight is the benefits of acknowledging and exploring the extraordinary et slash alien technologies machinery architecture and most important the libraries on the moon Because it's very obvious now that we are at the mercy of geology and climatology and weather unless we can bring to bear some additional physics to actually manipulate some of these major storms like hurricanes and tornadoes. Since they are rotating vortices, conceptually, it should not be a major problem to harness the physics once we understand how the technology works. And again, we could do it the hard way, which is to do all the science, all the engineering, all the step-by-step reconstruction of how this physics works with rotating systems. Or when we find them, we simply go to that section of the libraries on the moon built by people, obviously, a lot more, uh, shall we say, cognoscenti than we are, and simply find how to manipulate weather systems in a way that will prevent at some point in history, five years, 10 years, 20 years. You know, as they used to say, if you're planting a tree, the best time to do it is right now. So if we're looking at positive effects for an extraordinary panoply of science and engineering that's within our reach, far beyond our current capabilities, We now know tonight, and that's what tonight's show is going to be about, where we can find the details for putting this information to use for the benefit of humankind, and that, of course, is on the moon. Item number three. When I came across this this afternoon, I was kind of stunned because it just seems like yesterday, except if you look at item number three, it's a news story out of Yahoo!, on a decision by a group of experts in Miami, Florida, to basically halt further um, apartment and office construction development in a place called Brickell, the Brickell District of Miami, uh, down there on the east side of Miami. Um, A group of independent experts and the city's historic preservation office have cited the major prehistoric archaeological discovery now proceeding out from the work that Robin and I did many decades ago on the Miami Circle. And the analysis, which is to be presented to the the city's historic preservation board at a public hearing on Tuesday, could definitely raise the ante. For all of the potential development of Brickell that Robin and I and thousands and thousands of other people, not only in Miami, but also all across the country, courtesy of our appearances on art show night after night after night. It's so interesting, 25, 26 years after Robin and I began the effort to try to save this incredibly interesting site, well, the story of what it ultimately... Uh, came to is there in item number three, so you might want to take a look and uh, think about how time has flown, because it seems to me just like yesterday when everything was going on in Miami, and I had the heart attack, and Robin saved my life, and Art had everyone pray for me, and it kind of all came rushing back when I saw this story this afternoon, and it's been a quarter of a century and the uh, one person who is here or who should be here and who is not here to enjoy what we began and to see where it has gone is, uh, is Robin. Item number four. We have talked on this show many times about the potentials of the James Webb Telescope for radically shattering a whole bunch of research uh, uh, objectives and bringing stunning new information Uh, to light that had been either buried in the noise or had not even been noticed because of the uh, impediments to telescopes and time and all that. One of the closest really extraordinary nearby star systems located about 39 light years away um, is a a system called TRAPPIST-1. And TRAPPIST is an acronym, and I'm not going to or everybody by reciting what it means, but it basically refers to a discovery telescope uh, that was used to detect the system several years ago uh, from Earth, and now that Webb is in orbit and is working in an extraordinarily interesting fashion, uh, they have begun to do observations on the, the TRAPPIST-1 system, which consists of an M-type star, that's a very cool red dwarf star radiating about one ten thousandth of the uh, luminosity of the sun, and orbiting around it in a very interesting and mathematical array are seven Earth-sized planets, and you know that I have been looking at this system for a very long time, and it's actually an ancillary part of our conversation tonight, uh, weirdly enough, about the moon. And another moon that we're going to talk about as the evening progresses, a moon of Jupiter called Ganymede. Well, if you can take our discussion regarding this solar system and extrapolate it to this star system uh, 39 light years away, uh, you will kind of have a hint of where we're going to be going. Because as I've said many times, I really believe that the seven Earth-sized planets all orbiting in a very neat geometric and mathematical array around uh, TRAPPIST-1. In fact, they're not natural. They were placed in orbit by the same kind of extraordinary super mega solar system-wide civilization that did some major tinkering with our solar system. And the bottom line of that first story is they've looked at the first uh, planet that is on the inner side of the so-called habitable zone, and they found with Webb for the first time an Earth-like planet that is missing its atmosphere and has an extraordinarily high temperature on the day side, which, of course, kind of rules out life. But stay tuned, because it's obvious now what's happening with the TRAPPIST system. When the NASA principal investigators are doing their observations, they don't post them like press releases, like a lot of other NASA discoveries are are posted. They uh, are actually waiting to publish in peer reviewed journals. And I believe that the story relating to the inner moon, inner moon, inner planet of the TRAPPIST-1 collection of seven in the habitable zone, where the temperatures would be high enough to maintain liquid water, that they are doing this through the peer-reviewed literature so that that uh, uh, paper is appearing in nature. And given that it takes months and months and months from the time you submit a paper till the time it's accepted, till the time it's sent back, till the time that certain revisions are incorporated that are suggested by the editors, it's probably gonna be several years before the Webb Telescope can complete its survey of the entire Trappist system. But I guarantee you, this is only the beginning of something very, very interesting in terms of designer planetary systems. We're going to have to kind of get used to that idea because we may be seeing one only 39 light years away. And so this first uh, um, uh, planet that does not appear to be habitable is only a taste of things to come. Item number five. The reason that I wanted to do tonight's show is because we're focusing on the other geopower on the planet, the other major nation state. Um, Russia's not even in this conversation because it's the Chinese who have done extraordinarily interesting robotic unmanned uh, probing of the moon, both the near side and the far side. And in this article, very extensive article from Newsweek, uh, there are some, shall we say, um, previews of some of the things that China plans to do. And it's incorporated in an article with a very provocative title, Inside China's Plans to Conquer Space. Last time I heard about conquering space was somewhere back in the 1950s. I that's a kind of an interesting but passe concept. Anyway, you might want to read that carefully and then tally some of the things in this mainstream article with some of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight during tonight's show, which leads us into item number six. Um, A few months ago, probably around the beginning of the year, um, Senator Bill Nelson who used to be a U.S. senator, Democrat from Florida, who the president, President Biden, appointed as head of NASA, the NASA administrator, he came out with some very interesting cautionary warnings about China and their space program. And he kind of summed it up in one line, we better watch out. So some of his um, trepidations are listed in item number six. So you might want to take a look at that and then convolve it back into some of the things mentioned in item number five. And of course, all of that will become part of the conversation of tonight in terms of our research, which as far as we know, since the South Koreans aren't owning up to what their cameras are actually photographing, and I know this because one of my colleagues who is an astronomer has been sending email to the uh, imaging team's On the Denuri mission, the South Korean mission, for the last couple of weeks, trying to get them to acknowledge what the so-called ring moon images are telling us. And they're not even deigning to reply. They, you know, he's a professional. He is an astronomer. He has credentials. You can look him up. um, They can look him up. And so far, they have uh, completely stiffed him. And I find that very interesting because, again, they're posting astonishing images of this extraordinarily large and magnificent ancient lunar dome. But apparently they don't want to talk to anybody in the outside world about its existence, how they verified it, what they think in terms of their analysis, or what they plan to do uh, with it in terms of their continuing the Nuri mission. It's kind of weird because this isn't the Chinese. This is the South Koreans. But maybe there's a familial um, relationship that goes deeper than, you know, contemporary political systems, as you're going to see uh, very shortly, which leads us to item number eight, beginning several years ago, like at least a, a decade, if not more, The Chinese have been sending very regularly increasingly complicated and resourced missions, all unmanned, all designed to orbit the moon and to survey it for a a future Chinese uh, human landing. And then after they got like four or five of those missions uh, under their belt, they landed a lander called Chang-3. Uh, On the near side of the moon, uh, in the ocean of storms, back in December of, I believe it was 2013. From those images, you can see in uh, item number eight, they have confirmed from the surface the same extraordinary structures elevated above the horizon of the moon against the supposed dead black vacuum of space And what's really interesting is that they have confirmed everything that our Apollo astronauts uh, photographed decades earlier, but with a totally different technology, i.e. film, as opposed to digital imaging, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is number nine. Now, you'll notice I skipped over number 8A. Well, take a look at 8A. 8A is the surface graphic of the Chang Three official Chinese space agency website, and the most interesting thing about item number eight uh, A is in the bottom left-hand corner of the graphic. This is the this is a screen grab of the website from the Chinese. Notice there is bizarrely unreferenced, unmodeled, unannounced kind of like, what the heck is that doing there? There is a stick figure diagram of a tetrahedron. And I'm strongly suspecting, based on the events that happened after 2013 and the successful landing of Chang-3, that the inclusion of a tetrahedron on their website was an unacknowledged but coded communication to those all over the world that understand what these symbols mean that in addition to looking at the surface topography and the geology and taking lots and lots of color imagery the cheng 3 spacecraft also with some of its experiments or at least one was delving into the hyper dimensional physics of the moon and that's why in item number 8a in the lower left-hand corner, completely unattached, unannounced, unchronicled, uncharacterized, there is a tetrahedron. The Chinese are communicating something crucial about the moon and in code. Now, the one final item that you might need to know to appreciate what this all means is the Chinese did a big kind of uh, distraction when they landed uh, Chang 3 on the moon They had announced they were going to land in one area Called sinus iridium And they did not They landed at a different area Close by but a different area And they did it totally unannounced And then the coordinates Of the landing were 44 north Which is interesting Which is almost exactly halfway Between the equator and the pole And 19.5 west so if you think messages to be real need to be redundant you're you're accurate so what are the Chinese redundantly telling us well they put a tetrahedron uh, on their website which if you put it in a sphere it comes up to 19.5 north and south uh, if there's a double tetrahedron of course and then they use the same coded terminology to physically land their first lander Which consisted of a lander and a rover successfully on the moon in December of 2013, and they landed it at 19.5, which of course is redundant to the tetrahedron in the graphic on their website. Do you get the idea the Chinese were and are trying, like Emily Dickinson, to tell us all the truth about what they're doing with the moon? how they view the moon, but they're like Emily telling it slant. Item number nine. Um, if you look at a lot of the imagery coming down from the Chang-3 mission, you could see obvious uh, imagery of the domes as seen from the surface at the uh, 19.5 degree landing site. Item number nine is a comparison of the Chinese Uh, Chang 3 imagery With the Apollo 14 Imagery Taken of the Lunar Dome But on film And in particular um, The upper right hand corner Looks very similar uh, To what we're seeing In the Chinese image Except they're literally Decades apart Thousands of miles apart Taken with a totally different technology And taken by a totally different political system the bottom line is the two sets of missions by two countries separated by half a planet and by almost half a century are showing us essentially the same astounding dome-like phenomenon the future is going to be interesting i'll tell you what rather than go through the rest of uh, the imagery because we uh, really want to talk about them. I'd like to introduce our, uh, our participants tonight in no particular order except as the, how they appear on the website. We've got Ron Gerbron who is with us by phone from uh, Southern California, San Diego. Ron is our uh, resident generalist and he has some very interesting things to bring to the conversation tonight relating what we're seeing on the moon to what he and I noticed separately and did not know we were both looking at the same thing until we happened to kind of compare notes on the uh, uh, biggest satellite of Jupiter, the moon called Ganymede, and we found something extraordinarily similar to what we're seeing on Earth's moon, but literally in the outer solar system. And frankly, it's in a lot better condition as you're going to see than the image that uh, uh, you're going to be talking about in terms of tonight's uh, lunar discussion. Uh, Andrew Curry is with us. Andrew is a professional artist. He does a lot of work for Hollywood and commercials and Super Bowls and big pictures and, and uh, uh, commercial, you know, campaigns. Uh, He's also done some really amazing things, Uh, Relating to what we see on the moon and in terms of other uh, planetary missions that NASA has launched, uh, his sketches of the um, uh, DART mission and what happened when NASA hit a double asteroid are truly remarkable because they reveal all the physics about the impact that, of course, NASA has not yet owned up to. Uh, Barbara's with us. Barbara Honiger. Barbara wears many hats. She has the first degree in parapsychology from the uh, JFK University there in uh, Northern California. She was a member of the Ronald Reagan White House policy team uh, in the White House with an office just a few feet from the Oval Office during the early part of the Reagan administration. And when we have interesting political questions uh, Barbara is one of the uh, go-to people that I go to, and so she is with us tonight. She's also done something really extraordinary, and we're going to let her tell you about what she has done in terms of furthering this research uh, in terms of an obscure NASA astronaut that I'm sure most people uh, have never heard of or don't remember if they have, whose name is Alan Bean. And we will sort out all of that little mystery in the next few minutes. Uh, Jonathan is here, John Womack. John is an experiencer uh, of -of out-of-body travels. He travels regularly to various places, both within and far beyond the solar system. And uh, what he's done tonight is to assemble some images that relate to what we're seeing on the moon to what he's been researching with great detail um Here on earth In terms of an ancient And potentially ET or at least a very Advanced civilization Archaeological site uh, Which is located In Utah The state of Utah And last but not least we've got uh, Laura London back with us uh, Laura is an avid Astronomy fan And buff and expert In her own right And she also has been producing for many years a podcast relating to her first love, which is Jungian psychology. And um, I believe the name of it is Speaking of Jung. I don't know whether it's on live anymore or whether she's on a hiatus, but you can easily find it. There are archives. There's all kinds of shows that she has done, including she did a show with me. And how you relate materials that I've been researching to Jung – I will leave for your own ears to figure out. So that kind of takes us to the end of uh, the first half hour. Uh, We've got, you know, two and a half hours to go. When we come back, we're gonna bring all our panelists uh, uh, to the table around this uh, green felt table that we uh, relate, Whoop, 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 whoop. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, this is really bad. Why in the world are we having such terrible music?
1: Yeah, you know, it's not.
0: We're having some technical issues, folks. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Scratchy music notwithstanding.
2: Hugland and his
1: fascinating
2: guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month.
0: Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night. Yes, it is April Fool's, but this is not an April Fool's joke. Someday, you know, if I'd actually kind of thought ahead, I would have had someone on to talk about the origin of the concept of April Fool's uh, from the get-go. I believe it has to do with with the uh, replacement of the uh, Julian calendar many centuries ago with the Gregorian calendar, but don't hold me to that because my memory is a little fuzzy in that direction. So without further ado, why don't I introduce our other panelists tonight? And I will flip back. And so without uh, uh, hopefully a problem, uh, who, who do we have with us first? Uh, I don't know. Maybe me. There you are, Ron. Ron Gerbrand. Yes. You know you have a voice made uh, be- for you have a voice made for radio. Uh,
3: funny how that works out. Yeah, I thought so too for about a um, decade and a half. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, before I forget, in your intro there when you were talking about the um, Chinese things, uh, I think there's one motivational factor there that I I don't think can be discarded because we could all agree that the Chinese are very. They hold things very close to the chest, and uh, I think there was some paranoia involved in the uh, fact that they never announce the proper orbits of their things. They never announce when they're going to land or where they're going to land. Uh, sometimes not at all. Sometimes it's someplace else. And I think that was to because they're worried that somebody, uh, somebody else, God knows who they're scared of, uh, would um, you know jinx their craft or or, like or shoot I, I them down. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> I don't I don't think that's, you know, a, impossible to um consideration.
0: But see, the, given the given the current technological standoff among nations on earth, they hmm. cannot be paranoid about anybody on earth because we don't have that capability unless you call up visions of the so-called secret space program, which I blow uh hot and cold on kind of on alternate Thursdays. I really haven't quite put where that possibility lies in the panoply of geopolitics. But if there are ETs out there, if there are families, if there are the breakaways, maybe given that we're under some kind of quarantine and we're not all supposed to know what's up there. Maybe the Chinese are being appropriately paranoid because it may not be us to shoot them down, but somebody out there to keep them from spilling the beans. Yeah, that's uh, those last three words. I can kind of
3: probably sum it up. You know, it's the spilling the beans. Well,
0: remember they've been putting this stuff out. We're going to talk about some of the details during the next couple of three hours, and they've been huh. doing it without without comment. But it's clear if you know what you're looking at what they found, what they posted, what they published, again, but without comment. And then right in the middle of what they've been doing since 2013, something really bizarre happened a couple, three years ago. And what was that, Ron? Come on. Relative to what? Relative Relative to to the Chinese, Chinese. Relative to the Chinese being paranoid about putting out too much about what's on the moon. COVID-19. Uh, Remember, my model is the Chinese yeah. were the first victims. It was payback because they did not keep their lips buttoned closely enough, and somebody is unhappy as to what they've done in laying out the evidence we're going to be talking about tonight coming from the Chinese. Anyway.
3: Right. Um, so, therefore, but, they didn't announce ahead of time that they were going to use one of the traditional uh, uh, hermetic numbers for the, uh, you know, for the landing site or anything. You mean 19.5? Yeah, they were trying to misdirect just by not mentioning that. But original,
0: But by putting you know, it on the website. It. See, that's my point. It's not like yeah. this is an impermeable shield. They're leaking like a sieve in all directions, but only if you understand the language. And I guarantee you, Ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of space experts in the world haven't a clue what the Chinese have been presenting because they haven't said anything. Uh, yeah, I pretty much pretty much
3: agree with that. They're uh, um, and they well, their Mars rover is dead, and the uh, so therefore they they pushed out some. Um, recent information, which I noticed that very little coverage, that they announced they have done a new map of the entire globe of Mars.
0: Well, they've had a spacecraft in orbit uh, for at least, what, a couple of years? So that's what you can do from orbit. You make maps. Yeah, well, normally people
3: release pictures as they're going along, and they've only released a couple of meaningless shots uh, from that. But now they're saying uh, that using their medium-range camera, Of course. (laughs) They uh, wouldn't want to
0: give them the good stuff. You wouldn't uh, want to give them uh, a high-resolution imagery, of course not. Okay, uh, all right. We've kind of we've beaten this horse to death. Let me introduce next Jonathan Womack. John, welcome to the other side of midnight. John, are you there?
4: Yes, Um, it helps if I unmute the. Yeah, yeah.
0: Technical issues tonight. (laughs) Uh
4: Helped. You have some thoughts? Uh, Oh, do I have thoughts? Yes, (laughs) I have thoughts. Um, What we're seeing on the moon with your smoky glass, I believe we are seeing, or I am seeing, in Arches Park and other parts of the world this prismatic technology that defies words and explanation right now. I'm zeroing in on this, however. And... Um, do you want me to go through my slides? No, real no, quick? No, 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 no. This is just kind of an overview. I wanted to know –
0: well, first of all, I should probably ask everybody to weigh in. Do you believe there's an extraordinary lunar-wide glass dome based on all the evidence now, or don't you? And then we'll do another little sample at the end of the show when we present some of this new information to see where everybody stands
4: if they've changed
0: their minds. Obviously, you know where I stand
4: and I agree, and I, but I think it's more than that, and it's um there's artwork in it too, so I agree. I think Jonathan's right, yeah, because he's talking
3: about them having the same aesthetic expressed in two different uh, mediums.
0: There is an Apollo Eleven image taken from the command module, which of course was Columbia. Uh, while the lunar module was down on the surface and Neil and Buzz were uh, exploring, uh, uh, you know, Tranquility Base. And on this orbital image, which appears to be some of some of the newer imagery that they've been quietly replacing the old uh, hack photography in the archives, kind of like they're getting the house cleaned up for when company comes but they don't announce when they're replacing an old version of an image with a new version. But I saw in the last six months or so a stunning image taken from orbit from the command module uh, of an area on the moon, which is just on, off the upper left-hand uh, edge of the lunar horizon. It's of an area called Mare Marginus and Mare Smythe. And when you look at this close-up color Hasselblatt image looking down on Mari Smythe from orbit from only like 60 miles up, there is the unmistakable image of a vertical statue several miles in diameter that's not oriented looking up, but is oriented looking sideways like it was meant to be seen if you're on the surface And so I totally agree that whoever these guys were, they not only were extraordinary masters of architecture and mega engineering, but they also had this exquisite interplay of art in some of the better preserved areas uh, of this dome. And that's one of the things that we're going to now finally get to see as umpteen private missions are launched to, explore all over the lunar surface and you know it's only a matter of time until some tourist snaps a photo and bingo there goes the neighborhood okay moving on andrew mr mr artist andrew curry is with us andrew please uh check in
5: hi yeah hi richard hi everybody
6: uh well
5: i'm certainly seeing uh extraordinary things on the surface um i i'm seeing richard like m- monstrous gothic arches that's the only way i can describe it um, mm. sort of embedded in this ghostly material like i mean we've talked about it as being well you said you know as thin as cigarette smoke and whatever it is it's an impression that to me is there and it looks sophisticated and i don't think it's some sort of you know issue with enhancing an image i i think you you're getting a clear aesthetic coming out i'm talking about the images from like a, well, the apollo missions the ones that we've studied and i, I you know I, tonight when we go over this stuff i'll talk about some of the things that i've been exploring i've been trying to burrow down literally on the moon like a termite right like a bug <laughs> in the in the in the regolith yeah and and i mean uh, you know, it's – for me, it's the way to make this accordion unfold, and it looks like that a lot, like accordions that are unfolding in Gothic arch ways. I mean it's – so I, I – there's something there, man, and it's uh, extraordinary. So for sure, I, I think it is. Excellent. Okay. Uh, yeah.
0: Do we have Barbara with us yet? Yes. There you are. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I know I gave you your background, Hi. but you didn't chime in, so – you know, with my technical issues here, I, I, I thought maybe I'd missed you or something. So, um, No. Okay. Uh, do you want to kind of voice, uh, join the chorus yeah. and talk about uh, whether this stuff that I'm seeing is real?
7: Yeah, well, I'd like to make a comment about the Chinese and the moon first, and then I'll address that if that's all right.
0: Well, what we're going to um, do is we're going to do a brief introduction of everybody. No,
7: I understand. And then Mrs. we're going to have
0: – yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, don't worry. It'll be brief.
7: So uh, the main comment I want to make about what you've said so far about the Chinese and the moon uh, is that to me, one of the most, if not the most important thing about this obviously developing rivalry between the United States or the so-called West and the Chinese moon missions, lunar missions, um, is to remind everybody about the outer space Treaty. Because the United States is a ratified uh, signatory, along with China and almost every other nation on the Earth, to the Outer Space Treaty. And one of the things that the Outer Space Treaty does – and by the way, the United States is trying to wiggle out of it because they want to be able to mine the moon and asteroids and everything else for the corporate uh, structure, the the corporate state. China. Um, However, China is different. Um, China China is a, um, a, basically a commonwealth, and the Outer Space Treaty is very explicit that any profits from any activity, any commercial activity, any kind of profit-making activity, and the, anywhere in outer space, which is defined as I understand it, uh, beyond about 200 miles above the earth, um, that includes the moon, Mars, everything else in the universe, um, that it is for the common benefit of mankind. That's that's more in keeping with the social philosophy and political organization of the Chinese than it is the West. I just want to make that point. Um, so it will be very interesting to see um, who prevails because the Chinese really, in my opinion, um, are wanting to be dominant in space so that they can basically be the enforcers of the outer space treaty, which I think would be a good thing. All right. That's number one. Um, But as far as, um, as far as uh, you know, the claims uh, about the, the moon that that you make, Richard, there's no question in my mind, but you have absolutely established that there is something causing this um this brilliant almost rainbow like effect um no question about it do i believe there was a dome over the moon at any point no i do not however um i do believe that the effects that you have interpreted uh as having been caused by a a long time ago dome that is now basically just kind of dust um that I sent I sent you and I believe other people on this on this uh show uh, a very important article that just came out uh called it's there's a just recently discovered it's an article in the New York Times February 3rd of this year and the title of the article is ordinary ice has a has they just they've just discovered a new form of ice meaning a new form of water and it's called medium density amorphous ice and it's referred to as like glass, like glass. And I'm remembering that that wonderful uh, photo that you had in one of your items of the light shining through the multicolored stained glass. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I'm sorry,
0: what? I said yes.
7: Yeah. Uh, it, it the the effects the effects of light shining through this glassy form of water. That is created um, by by being shaken and chilled, or being uh, or ice being bombarded by something like very very hard objects, i.e., meteors. Um, I think that that is what we are seeing. That at least put it this way. I think it's a it's more in line with Occam's razor as an explanation for the actual effects that you have very clearly documented. So that's my comment.
0: Well, okay. Um, I don't want to get into a big argument on the physics, but I don't see how, you know, ice on the moon can currently create what we're seeing for the simple reason that the temperatures are so far above the melting point of ice in any of its forms that it would simply, you know, dissipate in a vacuum, certainly over a very long period of time, millions or billions of years. And what we're seeing, particularly when we look at the close-ups is an intense geometry that Andrew is going to talk about in terms of his analysis and his examinations. Uh, But I must say it's an excellent try, Barbara.
7: (laughs) Well, I happen to think it's uh, more in line with the principle of Occam's razor, but I have an open mind and I'm waiting to see more, you know, when we get better resolution photos from the surface.
3: Okay.
0: Richard. Uh, Yeah, sure. Ron, Barbara,
3: can I toss in a, Technical comment, uh, less, than a, less than a minute. Uh, yeah, when you freeze ice, uh, well, water, A, is non-compressible, which is a good thing because that means when we fall off a building, all we do is break things. We don't splatter. <laughs> uh, and um, the, uh, so, therefore, when it freezes, it swells about 10% usually. And if you do it under compression uh, to
6: prevent
3: that, it's how you break the crystalline structure, and you get this amorphous thing, which they, someone just, as Barbara pointed out, uh, did a whole bunch of testing on. You know, it's not like it was unknown in the past; uh, nobody had tested to see what effects this might have. Uh, and you get all these other effects that are much like glass. But I agree with you; you wouldn't likely build something out of it uh,
0: there. But it's uh, well. The reason it's compared to glass is because it doesn't have a crystalline. Form in the interior of the right. material; it's amorphous, and glass is yeah. glass is kind of like a frozen liquid. Um, but yeah. the temperature regimes do not overlap, and there is, I would say, zero probability—and I never say zero unless I mean it—that what we're seeing on the moon is any kind of ice. Not—I mean—that's the least favorable thermodynamic explanation. Occam's razor, notwithstanding, and I'm not quite sure why Occam's razor has come into this. Because once you open the door to extraterrestrials, there's no limit to their capabilities, given what you observe in, the, in forms of observation and/or experiment. So I'm not quite sure, sure why exactly. I'm not quite sure why you put Barbara, the idea of a lunar-wide multi-layer dome, uh, at the at the edge of of a rationality and that ice would be a better choice simply because it conforms to the least complicated explanation. Well, in this case, the ice explanation has to have so many caveats that it becomes far more complicated than simple glass structures built by a super civilization. Well, I disagree. Well,
7: I disagree respectfully. Yeah.
0: That's what makes horse races, as they used to
3: say. <laughs> yeah. What if it's there for some other reason than building? What if it was a, I mean, added, you know, a, a technological thing? I'm, I'm actually in defense of Barbara here. With the, um,
0: okay. Well. Uh, all right. Last but not least, we've got Laura London with us. Laura, welcome. Hi.
7: Hi, Laura.
0: Hey, Laura. Is Laura with searching us? for the mute, but searching. Don't for forget Georgia. I'm not forgetting Georgia.
5: So Richard.
0: Yeah. Where's, where's Laura?
5: We have not been able. Yeah. We haven't been able to reach her. Oh, what about
7: Robert Morningstar? I thought he was going to be
0: on. Robert Morningstar (laughs) is throwing a hissy fit because of Trump. He will not come on my show because of Trump and what I'm going to do tomorrow night. Oh, I see. I'm not, you know, Tom, I hate
3: to be in the defense counsel of everything, but no, he was he was upset. The show got postponed so many times.
0: No, that's not his uh, private email. He reveals that's just an excuse. So I don't want to talk about Robert. Okay, Robert is having a hissy fit. Robert will come will come back to the other side of midnight at some point. Uh, but tonight he didn't want to mm. participate, and he didn't want to participate tomorrow night. So Georgia, who was our resident metaphysician. When we encounter beings who literally can reshape planets, how does the concept of metaphysics of conscious entities in three dimensions uh, come at us with this kind of a totally new level uh, of capability by conscious beings uh, that, we're, that we've ever experienced?
8: Well, good evening, crew. <laughs> um... What I can bring to the table here in all of this is um, an opening of a a door to discussion about why does all of this matter? Why does it matter that we find artifacts on the moon, structures, artwork, whatever? Let's get into uh, some esoteric planetary history that I'd like to share with everybody tonight as we move along.
0: Super. Okay. All right. It's Mm -hmm. about 1053, which means it's uh, about seven minutes till the top of the hour. Uh, I want to go to Andrew because, Andrew, you've, uh, aside from me, probably done the most rigorous analysis of what we're seeing. Why am I right and Barbara is not,
5: based on what you've seen? Uh, That's a very good entry for me. I want to read.
7: Why am I right? or Why am I right? (laughs)
5: <laughs> well, Barbara, I, 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 look, I want to – Richard has mentioned this many times before what I'm about to say uh, throughout his long, decades-long career. He's written about it, but I think we have to bring it to the fore again, and that is the Brookings Institute uh, report from 1961 called the Proposed Studies on the Implications of Peaceful space activities for human affairs, better known as the Brookings report. I'm going to read briefly a little bit that I wrote and then a quote from the actual report. Some of the issues discussed around the inevitable technological advancements included the worldwide connectivity of satellite-based communications, hmm, the internet, and space-based weather prediction, including a suggestion of weather control. Cue what Richard was talking about off the top of the show. Space industries, Back to Barbara. And foreign policy. Back to Barbara. Technological byproducts such as telemetry, stress research, miniaturized power sources, new fabricating materials, and propulsion were also considered. The report strongly recommended that NASA develop a comprehensive social science research focus to examine the Quote, potential benefits and problems arising from the peaceful use of space, unquote. While the ramifications of scientific and technological innovation on human society seem to be the focus of the report, a section towards the end of this document presents a fascinating scenario. And now to quote, it is conceivable that there is semi-intelligent life in some part of our solar system or highly intelligent life, which is not technologically orientated. And many cosmologists and astronomers think it very likely that there is intelligent life in many other solar systems. While face-to-face meetings with it will not occur within the next 20 years, unless its technologic, technology is more advanced than ours, qualifying it to visit Earth, artifacts left at some <laughs> point in time by these life forms might possibly be discovered through our space activities on the Moon, Mars, or Venus. This was presented back in 1950 195- or 1961, and it just was the launching pad for everything that we're discussing right now. And embedded in all this is all these these predictions came true, and all the topics that, like Robert, what you were talking about, or what we're doing to go out into space, are about to come true if they're not already happening, and we just don't know about it. And on top of that, you know, the icing on the cake is, gee, NASA was talking about artifacts. (laughs) And Richard, do you want to take it from there? I know there's a couple minutes left, but I think it sets the
0: stage. Well, the thing I find interesting about Brookings, and actually the report was done in 59 and delivered to the White House from the the, uh, long-range section of NASA, which had commissioned this study from this think tank down the street from the White House called... Uh, the Brookings Institute. They gave it to President Eisenhower. Um, it was then when the, when the um, uh, administrations changed hands in 1960 when Eisenhower you know, left the stage and President Kennedy, his administration took over. Uh, for some reason, the Kennedy administration decided to transmit this report to the Congress unabridged so that that's how we're getting to see this. Uh, I, I forget which number of Congress it was that actually uh, uh, posted this or, or printed it, published it. And that's how we have a public record of what NASA had quietly been asking Brookings to look at. And what I found so fascinating when I read that footnote many, many, many years ago was how they could so confidently proclaim in this document that there'd be no evidence of highly advanced technology in the solar system before 20 years. How did they know it was going to be a generation 20 years till we found the evidence? Good question. (laughs) Well, do you have a good answer?
5: I, I I mean, I don't know, Richard, unless they felt that their own technology needed to go forward, or they knew something.
0: Ah, you hit the magic words. They knew something. I'm believing now, much more than I used to, that everything we're seeing that's going on in terms of space, in terms of major nations, is part of a very long-term plan, and the idea was simply to do it on a sacred timetable that would allow them to kind of make everything come out right at the end after a certain amount of development and political backgrounding, i.e. the Rookings report suggesting there had to be a international program of education in order for the human race when it confronted its reality to not freak out. You're on the other what, side of midnight. What happened 20 years later? Uh, we will get to that when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And welcome back everyone on this, uh, Saturday night, April 1st. No, this is not a, uh, April Fool's show. This is for real. There are extraordinary structures, artificial structures. Our panelists have voted, uh, what four to one, five to one, that these are art architectural things. And I'm hoping as we move through some additional imagery that Barbara will take a look and, uh, she will join the rest of us. If not, it's only, in my view, a matter of time, because we're going to have extraordinary first-person eyewitnesses and photography and live television and all kinds of Twitter. And we're going to see amazing things at the moon through human eyes and through astronauts who are, in fact, not even – uh you know, Government astronauts But civilians The Musk ambitious expedition Of nine artists Who within a year and a half Maybe uh, less Are going to leave for a stunning Three day orbit Of the moon Which is going to leave everyone on earth With no doubt As to what exists Around the moon That no one up till now Has even dreamed about It's so delicate to see and photograph, which is why the uh, uh, technology of the South Koreans and their inclusion of a uh, polarizing camera on the Denuri South Korean mission has created such a stunning breakthrough in gathering simple photographic information as to what is on the moon. So... um, Let's go back to our panelists. Uh, Andrew, I believe we were, you, were, you were saying something, and then Barbara uh, broke in and asked the question. It was what? What happened in 20 years?
7: Can, can you hear me? I wanted to clarify my position, which was, I think, misstated. Um, okay. I think you asked the question of me, I believe. Do I, do I believe that there is now a dome around the moon? No, I don't. Um, do I believe, or am I completely open to there being artificial structures on the Moon, Mars, etc.? Absolutely.
0: Okay. What is your problem with an ancient dome completely covering the entire lunar surface, like layers of Saran Wrap? Tell me why yes, that. I... Tell me why that's a kind of a showstopper for you.
7: Well, I think it should be obvious. Um, As I said, it violates Occam's razor. It would be extremely difficult to do.
0: How does it it violate Occam's razor? (laughs) Barbara, civilizations build stuff. If you're advanced enough, you build big stuff.
7: Yes, I know, but there's no proof of that advanced civilization. I mean, that is is an assumption. But anyway, I just wanted to be clear that I'm completely open and actually think we probably will find um, some kind of artificial archaeology.
0: Well, there's a whole range of different archaeology. There's the uh, uh, individual buildings that uh, Keith Laney has found in some of the craters, some of the crater floors uh, near the, uh, I believe, the south pole of the moon that Andrew has been in touch with. uh, about at some length they are very different than this extraordinary mega engineering uh, glass set of layers that the imagery the evidence is now showing us so let's go back to andrew let's talk evidence okay
5: Uh, richard before we do that um, just some listener reaction we have lots of work to do Um, one of your listeners just uh, messaged me and he said I am with Barbara. No dome. There is no reason for a dome on the moon when the ETs have the earth. So a lot of convincing here.
0: Wait, wait, wait. That's a lot of – hang on. Hang on, guys. That's a lot of incredible assumptions. How does this listener know how ETs think or the reason for the dome?
3: Richard, we could rename the show Incredible Assumptions. That's a, it's a, no that's a good title. no, it's based on data, Andrew, please I'm talk not saying about any of it's wrong. I'm not saying any of it's wrong No, i let me shoehorn her and in my outrageous uh theory for the night because it's kind of in defense of uh barbara semi uh the i'm on that's why I'm on her side about this. I think that the the whole discussion of the uh dome uh as in globe, around the moon, including that other <clears throat> similar-sized moon that you're going to talk about later, uh, is uh, based, on a, based on possibly a false assumption. I mean, uh, my outrageous presentation, which I've danced with for years, is that the moon was parked there. I have never seen any proper uh, science indicating how the moon got to where it and so if it was parked there if somebody brought it there perhaps they had it you mentioned saran wrap uh i was thinking bubble wrap perhaps it was in some case uh already contained or covered with something which might have been in bad repair it could have been a discarded station or something from somewhere else and they said let's use this it's the right size and then there's a second generation of stuff there, which produced the glass architecture that the uh, Apollo astronauts and most of the uh, mythic accounts of, uh, that seem to refer to crystal cities, et cetera, uh, were <clears throat> in, uh, in our folklore. That, uh, so it was perhaps two different processes. That would kind of explain the way that some of it seems to be fairly substantial and some of it seems to be basically as you said cigarette smoke. And if you tie that into what Barbara is saying, Well the idea that the,
0: the idea that you can have a lunar wide tens of miles high multi layered glass structure, intensely geometric mm-hmm. with cross beams and cubicles and supports and all that. That's what's in the Photography, that's what's in the actual imagery, the evidence, who built it, who built it, when they built it, why they built it, how old it is since they built it. All of those things are conjecture. We have no ground truth. We have not found the libraries. I am sure we're going to find when we get to the archives or libraries and no advanced civilization can exist for an instant without leaving records for other generations, which is why I keep talking about these uh, extraterrestrial libraries, and I, I'm not talking yeah. about huge buildings filled with, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, volumes of leather or papyrus or whatever. I'm talking whatever form, like uh, our, our 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 friend uh, uh, Nova Nova Spivak, who's producing archive library. Someone's making noise in the background, please mute. You're muted. I'm sorry. Is that me? Mean- yeah, it may have been you. Okay, it stopped. Okay. Um, the idea that you can do civilization without leaving a record is, I believe, impossible uh, unless you have some way of communicating telepathically across generations, which would definitely violate Occam's razor at this point. So a physical, and we're still getting noises, the just mute, just turn off something. The idea that you would have a megastructure around the moon and not right off know who did it or when or even how, but can admit that it's physically there, even if it's in an incredibly degraded state at the present compared to when it was new. You know, up until this program, we have never made it a point of record that Ron and I found another whole planetary body, the largest moon of Jupiter called Ganymede, which appears to have the same kind of multi-leveled geometric glass structure, except it's in much better condition than the one that's around our own moon. Again, all of this will be tested six ways from Sunday by both the Artemis missions, which are going to try to land at the South Pole through the densest parts of this ancient dome on the near side, which I find very uh, problematic unless they can find the holes and get down safely through what used to be uh, impenetrable or the structure on Ganymede in terms of asking what was it used for. It could be that these domes are no more complicated than a way to keep the air in. If you don't, trust in force fields, if you don't trust in long-lived power supplies, where you would have to have active technology for thousands, if not millions of years, to retain an atmosphere around a body where the gravity will basically let the atmosphere dissipate in a relatively brief uh, period of time of just a few millennia, then the other answer, which is permanent, at least as permanent as things can be in an Entropy environment like three dimensions would be to construct a physical barrier made of some transparent material so that sunlight can enter, but air cannot escape. And if it has no other practical use than it was used to basically dome in the moon and allow gravitational atmosphere escape to not take place, Uh, Until it was eroded to the point of of where there were too many holes and the atmosphere would leak away. Uh, That's equally plausible in my reconstruction uh, as the idea that it was built to protect, for instance, ancient archaeological or geological evidence from further small bombardment. Um, In other words, until we go to the moon and find the libraries, find the architectural plans, find the description of what this thing was supposed to do, all bets as to its purpose, its end use, and certainly who built it uh, are off. The only thing that I will hang my hat on is the evidence, the photographs overwhelmingly tell me that it was there, it once was much denser, the side facing the earth is now almost gone. the materials on the far side of the moon, as attested to by both the Chinese and the American missions, appears to be in much better shape, maybe equivalent to what we're seeing around Ganymede, but we won't know that until we go back and have enough time to really explore the moon, which the Apollo program with uh, you know pinpoint landings that stayed just a few hours certainly did not have time to do. Let me go back to Andrew. Andrew, evidence, evidence.
5: Okay. Uh, Richard, before we do that, a question was left <laughs> hanging before the break. I'm sorry to block you again, but just thinking of it, a line of scrimmage here. But um, Barbara said, well, what happened 20 years later? I mean, the main thing that pops out for me 20 years later after Brookings is the Space Shuttle mission, which didn't really go over in very high places. And if that's the case, then it seems like an embargo came at that point, if that was a prediction twenty years later for something to happen. And now we're in a another you know, we have I Ardennes,
0: think but. you may have hit on something very interesting, and this again is back in, in Barbara's purview. My feeling from reading Brookings And my feeling from looking at the Apollo data and all that happened during and after Apollo, and then what happened in the subsequent decades up until Bush announced we were suddenly going to go back, and that got truncated, and now we're literally on the edge of really going back, both with governmental missions and with um, uh, civilian missions like Musk, what happened was... They reevaluated the timetable. They realized that at the end of the Apollo program, they could no more admit what was there than they could admit that, uh, you know, there are aliens walking on our streets that look like humans because they're related. They just don't happen to have their home here on Earth. They're from somewhere else. In other words, both ideas would be so shocking to a mainstream general population that they reevaluated the timetable. And they basically said, okay, these folks are not gonna be ready in the 20 years that we originally thought, but it's gonna take a lot longer because they're a lot dumber and a lot more rigid and a lot more fearful than even our worst nightmares projected. Does that answer your question? Barbara?
8: Richard, can I interrupt Hi, Georgia. Yes, yes, by all means. <laughs> um, give me a moment here. Uh, I want to say something about Ganymede from a metaphysical perspective. Um, but you're talking about timing here. You know, when an individual undergoes some kind of a really deep trauma, very often that memory is suppressed, and it's suppressed for a reason. Suppressed because the individual isn't in a place to deal with it yet. But when the individual becomes ready, it begins to bubble to the surface. This is true not only for individuals, but for nations and big swaths of people. Um, We needed to be prepared to deal with our past, Now, from a metaphysical standpoint, you know, when a lot of the Eastern wisdom began to come west in the late 1800s, uh, people like Blavatsky, for instance, uh, drew on sources from the Hindu Mahabharata, the Vedas. And what they have to say about the moon is that the moon is much older than Earth. It was the home of a previous uh, flowering of civilization. And they talk about the moon as a mystery, and they call it a failed experiment. Oh. And whatever, whatever brought the moon to an end, the moon went into, an, and the souls that um, were part of that civilization went into something called, the Hindus call preleya, which is the time between incarnations. When this Earth reached the point midway uh, in the Atlantean civilization, a lot of those souls that were part of the moon chain, as it's called, were allowed to incarnate into Earth's humanity. And they brought with them impulses that were different and in some ways oppositional to the program here. And what metaphysical tradition says is that the fight that we are undergoing now between spiritual impulse and materialism has its roots in that influx of those souls from the moon chain into Earth's humanity. This uh, teaching also, um, Blavatsky, Bailey, some of the the writers in the late 1800s and early 1900s that were drawing from Eastern sources say that Jupiter is not inhabited, but two of its moons are. Mm. Not were, but are.
0: Gosh, that reminds me of Bob Highline's Farmer in the Sky, <laughs> which was his so that
8: beautiful, That beautiful, stunning picture that Ron brought of Danameed, Um yeah. Immediately made me think of that section uh, in some of the Alice Bailey material where they talk about two of Jupiter's moons being inhabited. Which sure other
3: one would be Callisto?
8: I don't know. the The names were not given. Yeah. Uh, can,
0: can I it, add something it, here? It, right? it is probably Europa. Yes. Yes, uh Andrew, go ahead.
5: So, kind of jumping on with georgia for a second in terms of memory and kind of extrapolating out what you're saying richard in terms of hmm, humanity's not ready and kind of possibly now embodying a time where we literally get back into our spacesuit i have to relate a very quick story i just came back from your beautiful country by the way california i came back from california which was raining <laughs> almost the entire time but oh my god it was beautiful I, 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 the hills were unbelievable. They were green. The light dappled the, all these beautiful hills, you know, as you're racing around on those beautiful, wonderful freeways that you can race around on. And the, the wildflowers, it was amazing. Just, just, oh, my, the flowering that's going on in that state is unbelievable, at least from the natural perspective. But very quickly, um, Georgia, when I was driving, I was, I had the weirdest sensation I've never had before. And that was I felt like a piece of my face was missing, and I, try, and I tried to explain this to myself. I was driving along, and I'm going – I got my wedding ring, my watch. I got my, you know, my, my jacket on or whatever, but, but I kept getting the sense that I'm wearing a helmet of some sort, and part and, and the jaw piece or the, the, the mouthpiece was missing. And it was, I, 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 I've never had this feeling before. It was absolutely insane, and everywhere I was driving in California, that this sensation was coming. And I, I, I can't go much beyond that. I mean, I told Robert about it, and he immediately said, "Hey, here's a conquistador helmet, right? And which has some of the images. They have like a like face, a, a, like a jaw mouth faceplate." But then I spoke to Richard about it. Richard, I spoke to you about it, and you said, what did it feel like? And I said, well, it felt very aerodynamic or, you know, like it, it really fit well, whatever was supposed to be there. And the rest of the quote-unquote helmet, this thing I was feeling around my face, felt like it fit comfortably and like it wasn't awkward. It was, and it felt um, really great <laughs> on some level, but there was a piece missing. So, George, I don't know if this lines up where I'm just having a crazy moment, California, but you know, maybe we are coming to a time where we are re embodying I don't know, who we were or what we need to become. I don't know.
8: Well, again, I think a lot of our deep psychological memory is coming to the surface and it's it's time that we recover that. We we can't go forward into the future without knowing our past. And so understanding our past and what really happened is going to give us a better shot at choosing a better future. You know, your, your helmet thing, uh, I don't know exactly where you were, but much of California desert was at one time underwater, you know, the whole area out in Joshua tree, that whole area, you can see where, you know, the, the water line is on some of the, the cliffs. And so, um, you know, maybe you were under the water with that helmet.
5: Um, Well, I was racing, we were racing to um, baseball tournaments between Sandy or Irvine, California and San Diego. So I don't exactly know where I was going, but it was gorgeous and frenetic. But yeah, no, it was, it was a feeling. And uh, anyways, I just thought I'd plop that in there because I I think it kind of fits the discussion even though richard and i still haven't gone to the to the data yet
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's why these are conversations yeah. and not interviews
4: yeah
3: no but i thought that that uh view of um, mysticism there fits in very nicely with the uh other theories about those well, wait, about wait, wait,
0: wait. <laughs> when you say mysticism, <laughs> when you say mysticism i'm thinking ancient 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 recorded history that has been okay. pigeonholed into another category, but in fact is telling us about previous civilizations on Earth that have come and gone long before us. Right, Georgia?
8: Absolutely. And and again, you know, a lot of this stuff is coming from the East, primarily from the, the Hindu uh, traditions. I mean, they recorded everything going way, way back. But... If you want to start playing with some of our themes tonight, maybe some of this came from even further east via China and why they have a part to play in this, because they were part of whatever originally happened.
0: That's exactly where I think this should be going. So let me, let me interrupt okay. here and talk about uh, a study I did many decades ago when I was uh, at CBS. I started looking at some of the core data, the the core sample data uh, from the Apollo program. Because you remember certain missions, they had this very complex drill that the astronauts would hold and try to press with their weight down onto the moon. And then they would extract core tubes. The core tubes would then be, you know, disconnected and sent to earth and reconnected in a laboratory in Houston. And just like the uh, uh, ice cores from Greenland can tell what the, climate was and the atmosphere and the temperature and the oxygen levels like a million years ago from looking at core samples from Greenland. Well, you can do the same thing by looking at the Apollo core samples from the moon. And the most amazing thing that I encountered when I was beginning to look in this direction about, you know, a lot of the mainstream celestial mechanics about the origin of the moon and its orbit and all that, Ron is absolutely right. Nobody can really make it fit. And they've just kind of papered it over. The moon we see up there tonight should not be where it is, should not be in that orbit, should not be tilted the way it is, should not be angled to the sun the way, in other words, nothing about the moon easily uh, succumbs to a simple physical solar system model To the point where after Apollo, the various uh, mainstream geologists began to think of a large pre-planetary object smacking into a proto-moon, leaving what we see tonight as the moon. Which, of course, is not true, because if that had happened, you wouldn't have the structures, etc., etc. So, I began looking at this idea of lunar origins. And again, we're getting background noise from someone. Please mute. Um, The moon in these core tube samples has an abrupt horizon. Uh, I forget how many feet below the surface, but it literally uh, makes a jump of about a billion and a half years. And the materials embedded in the lunar uh, material are radically different than the stuff on the surface. In fact, they're so different that one of the researchers said it's almost like the moon had been subjected to a very different uh, solar wind compared to the one that it's experiencing now as it orbits the Earth and the Earth and the moon orbit the sun. So I began looking at the idea that maybe in the same vein that Ron approached this, that sudden demarcation in the core sampling was when the moon was literally brought from wherever it was originally far outside the solar system was brought to the solar system to play the function of a life amplifier a life driver hyperdimensionally in the earth moon system and the the date of that would have been when it was placed in orbit around the earth something like 600 million years ago and it would have been responsible if you apply the hd physics model for what's called the cambrian explosion where in the geological strata on earth there's just basically little guys without backbones and you know skeletons and all that and suddenly there's this eruption very complex creatures that appear to be uh shall we say interested in doing much more complex stuff okay we reach- richard yeah richard. Hi- we're at the top of the hour so we have yeah
7: to- i know 30 seconds
0: no we don't have 30 After seconds the- it's a hard break After- we have to go when we come back on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland we shall return
2: Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Thought Radio at the cutting edge of Science and Thought. The other side of midnight.com.
0: Welcome back, everyone, overcoming with great precision, hopefully, our uh, technical issues for having more than our average share tonight. And I'm just wondering, well, I'm, I'm, I wonder a lot of things. I have no idea why um, things are happening that should not be happening. But that's kind of the mainstay of the other side of midnight. So, uh, you know, kind of hang with us and we'll make it all work. You're on the other side of midnight. My guests this morning are Barbara Honiger, Ron Gerbron, Andrew Curry, Georgia Lambert. Keith is in the background. Um, Who am I missing? Uh, Laura's not with us. Laura Lunnon is supposed to be joining us, but we're having some kind of communications issues there. So let me go back to Barbara. You were going to say something. Barbara? Hello?
1: Barbara. Can huh? you Richard?
0: <laughs> this is crazy. Can you hear me? What is this? A mic and mechanic?
3: <laughs> <laughs> can you hear me? Can you hear me, Colin?
0: <laughs> Colin? Yeah. Um. <laughs> okay, Barbara, are you with us?
7: Yes. Can you hear
0: me? Yes, I can hear you now.
7: Oh now you can now you can. Yeah, just a quick question. Um, I'm a little bit uh, mystified um, by this discussion about, uh, you know, how the moon got to where it was. I thought that that had been definitively determined by the analysis of over about 850 moon rocks brought back that uh, it was, the moon was originally part of the earth, Um, that there was some massive impact uh, about 4 billion years ago.
0: Yeah. That was the model I was explaining that, that an object, uh, In the solar system, a protoplanet smacked into uh, a forming satellite around the Earth, leaving what is now Mm -hmm. the moon. And that's the demarcation of the time horizon for when it occurred, according to the...
7: That's not my understanding. My understanding from reading quite a bit, including books, uh, and talking to one of the uh, major (laughs) analyzers of the moon rock, who happens to also be a 9-11 truth. A researcher, um, is that it was the prototypical Earth that was hit by this large object. Wait, wait, wait. It,
0: it isn't, isn't that what I said? No, you... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the Earth was supposed to be hit. Well, by Richard, a proto-
3: you said that and meant it. It just didn't cut. You just neglected a word or two to indicate which of those very similar theories, both of which are wrong, uh, was applicable.
0: Well, the, the reason the reason they're wrong is because given that the Apollo-era scientists could not figure out when they finally got their samples how they could square with the original origin theories of the moon. For one thing, Barbara, they found in the rocks all high-temperature materials. All the low-temperature stuff was missing. So it was like the moon had somehow been heated to an extraordinary elevated temperature. They talk about the plagioclase Ocean, which is basically an ocean of uh, light rock magma covering the entire moon after the impact and the reassembly of the fragments from the smashing into the earth of the current moon. And the only reason they did that is because they were looking at their chronology of materials garnered from the surface, from the, quote, rocks, and they decoded from the rocks a high-temperature origin. Well, let me point out one thing. If you're looking at manufactured glass or structure or architecture, which has gone through an industrial process, even if it's a planet-wide industrial process, the end products are going to look like natural magmas, but if your model does not include any artificial sentient construction in the model the only place you can find refuge is in a natural catastrophic collisional scenario that leaves the surface of the moon covered with high temperature refractory materials so there are two ways there are two ways to get there one is through their natural impact process the other is through large-scale mega Planetary engineering of a dome, and again, it's, well, it's, it's let, model. Let, let, me,
7: let me just let me just state that's my understanding, and I haven't heard you say it this way, but it's my understanding from the analysis of the of the lunar material that was brought back, about eight hundred and fifty pounds of it, um, that the um, the raining hypothesis uh, or analysis is that. About 4 billion years ago, and the Earth is presumably only about 4.5 billion, early in the formation of the solar system, the object that was to become the Earth, when it was still extremely hot itself, was impacted by an incoming large object, which that impact caused about one quarter of the mass of what would become the Earth to spin off from it and become the Moon, that the That the underlying material, not the surface material apparently from what you've said, but that the vast majority of the uh, deep material of the moon uh, is basically the same material as the Earth. Now, I do find it fascinating if the core samples coming back from the moon showed showed that the outer portion of the moon is very different. That's very
0: interesting. That's what got me all – and these these were papers being done at the American Museum of Natural History by a guy named Dr. French, who was one of the uh, uh, Apollo analysis team members. And he had an office not too far away from me, and that's how I got intrigued with the idea that the Apollo core samples indicated, if you were being very, very, very naive, that the moon did not always live under the current solar wind. It somehow experienced a very different solar wind, the solar wind of a very evolved, ancient, dying, red, giant star, which raises a really fascinating set of ideas. Suppose the current solar system we inhabit did not originate all at the same time in all the various planetary objects and moons that we see. Suppose in my model of a designer solar system, someone with a lot more engineering and physics than we have literally assembled this solar system out of disparate pieces from many other star systems and put it together as a composite, as a background, as a foundation, as a kindergarten for developing consciousness going Back to George's data.
8: You know, Richard, there's a, there's another thing that hasn't come into our discussion, and that is that we might be looking at multi-layered activity here. You know, we can look at the very, very ancient uh, you mean, you period, mean, you... period of the moon where, where the moon was alive and... and There might have been a a, a civilization going on. But when it, you know, whatever it went through that caused it to be a a dead seer pretty much, um, even after that, other civilizations may have used it as basis for observation. Exactly. So you're looking at a
0: huge segment of different epochs.
8: Exactly, yeah. just like we have on Earth, where you have a civilization on top of an older civilization on top of an older civilization, yeah,
0: except these civilizations you know was have hey, have spaceship will travel, they could in the, in my model, they literally were able to transport the moon from some other destination, some other star system to bring it here to be part of a larger whole. Of what we see as a solar do you realize guys and i've, I've written about this in fact it's on the uh, enterprise missions with an s make sure you put the s on the end of missions uh it's it's part of my it only takes one white crow paper which is that the modern astronomers now that they've had like 20 25 years of looking at other star systems with various techniques from earth radial Uh, spectrometry or transit methods or whatever we've got now thousands of other star systems with planets do you know that in all that thousands and thousands of examples the solar system that we are living in tonight and this is what astronomers and scientists are terrified of ever hearing uttered but i'm going to utter it anyway the solar system is unique We have found nothing in the galaxy with all of these, you know, generation now of telescopes looking at other exoplanets. We found nothing that looks like this solar system. It's one of thousands, and every new one that's found is not like this. So when you encounter a situation where, remember, it's the so-called anthropomorphic principle that we're just living an average humdrum existence in 3D And there'll be star systems and other civilizations and other people all over the universe and other galaxies. And they basically are living the kind of life we're living with some variations. Well, in terms of the first order of the Copernican principle, which is that we are average, it turns out we are not average. And astronomers and scientists, up to and including Abby Loeb, they're aware of this, but they don't want to talk about it because it makes humans and this civilization and this planet and this solar system unique, and they, they will avoid at the penalty of almost death announcing that in any formal structure, but it's real. This solar system tonight is the only one that's structured the way we see it. And my model is because it was designed. And the pieces that made it up were brought in from a lot of different places. And they could have included, Georgia, inhabited worlds that were moved here so they could then move to their next level of incarnation, which was on planets like the Earth. Not according
6: to the 6,000-year-old tablets. Say that yeah, that but
0: those moon, are not right. That, those are
6: wrong. That moon is around Japan, Nibiru. Either. That m- yeah. that moon was pulled into this orbit after it struck the watery planet that was between Mars and Jupiter. Again, you're you, you are taking right. Sitchin literally. Sitchin, Sitchin I, didn't. Sitchin did not do anything but translate when he wrote his book. And without he was the context, stuff, we to, don't he know. Was trying to shoehorn and, the lost Book of Inky into the Bible. Right. The, if you read the lost book of inky and don't don't try to shoehorn it into the bible the bible fits easily into it and we were told what took place here 450,000 years ago but nobody's accepting what's being told because they don't want to see it but go look at utah that is all of their stuff that they built back then but nobody sees that they they say oh this is natural it's natural no we're not paying attention because we want to have our own <laughs> own way of looking at what's going on. We were told what took place. We were told by Edward Meyer. But Nobody listened to him. Just,
0: just because you're told doesn't mean it's the truth. You need well, evidence. You thing. need scientific
3: evidence. 6,000-year-old tablets tell a wrong, story, you
6: know and the story the story is told in the translation not because somebody bent it like stichin did in his books the story tells what's going on now if you can accept it that's what took place because we were told well
0: all right all right let me let me subject it to the same criteria i'm going to subject my own stuff to which is given that these tablets are like 6000 years and given that the uh, moon was added to the earth's 600 million years ago, according to the data, there's an awful lot of time between those two time periods for retelling and retelling and retelling and all kinds of errors and misconceptions and miscontextualization of the original data. The longest game of
3: telephone in
0: history. Exactly. So I put Sitchin on a shelf. I put those texts on a shelf and I say, okay, that's interesting. At some point we'll be able to compare them point by point with the libraries that are as old in the solar system as the events we're talking about. But nothing on Earth currently in any way, shape, or form conforms to that, except maybe one region that John is in at in a place called Arches Park in Utah. John?
4: Yes, I don't know where to start, Richard. (laughs) Uh, That
3: was a beautiful intro. What do you mean you don't know where to start? (laughs) It just rolls right into you, and you go,
4: duh. Well, because of that, that's why, and my mind is (laughs) overloading. There's mornings when I get up, and I feel so lost. I don't know what to do, because how the hell am I going to get this out? And then I'm shown that, indeed, I'm shown by my guides that I've been preparing for this all my life. I'm like, why not William Shatner or Van Daniken or Giorgio or one of these David Childress? No, I've been preparing for this all my life with my out-of-body travels and indeed even a 10-year span where I was a hardcore gamer and I beat the first six games of Lara Croft and then I am guided into the 3D modeling world, virtual creation, because these people, they are creators and they create solar systems. And like you said, Richard, they are designers and creators. So they put the art; it's the art, and then you have all the technology. And so it's so vast and multi-layered. Um, we're going to do a two-night a two-part show on the 21st um, about this and that's just going to allow me a chance to scratch the surface of some of what's going on and I'm going to show everyone in a way that is clear and irrefutable about what is at Arches Park so do you want me to um, look at a few that was your intro yes go for it (laughs) Okay, slide number one is um, just Tell try.
8: people how to get to your slides
4: Oh yeah, you can go to the other side of midnight.com That's the homepage, the URL, the other side of midnight.com And you can scroll down and click on tonight's banner About what do the Chinese know about the moon And that brings you to the show page And the show page has fast links to uh, everyone's items, and minor under Jonathan. So, um, this first image, see the Earth, it's, it's been a huge help that I've spent the last 10 years getting into virtual reality and how objects are extruded from a 2D plane into 3D space. And this is what I do almost every day. I'm working in this world. So... When I look at the Earth, I see – and these are – they feed me these images. Uh, It's a telepathic communication I have going on with these folks, So I get these images. And and slide one, you can see I have outlined some dark blue areas showing a face. And um, the right side of that face is another face that that is Hera. And I'm going to show you Hera over and over again and over again – in, in a few weeks Because they have this The artist they, they start in Earth orbit And you see A few of these characters And as you go down Closer into to Toward the Earth And Arches Park in particular Is where I'm going to Focus on You see her Again and again Because she's the first one To become the um, Half human And half Serpent uh, What do they call them? Reptilian She's a reptilian, so uh, I'm so, going to so, show so you. H- hang, on, oh. hang,
0: hang on, hang okay. on, John. Okay. So we so we contact this properly. <clears throat> We've gone from the moon, and the idea of an extraordinarily ancient super civilization that may have been able to bring an inhabited moon from wherever they brought it from to this assembly point to be part of the panoply and the tapestry of what the solar system was going to give birth to. That's one set of data we now have. Another set is that at various places on the Earth, there appear to be ancient um, intimations of ruins and architecture and design and manufacture of of extraordinary monuments that are part of what George and I talked about as different epochs of this civilization uh, of the designer solar system that took place. And what John's been looking at here in the domestic continental United States is an area in, in, in uh, Utah where we have an extraordinarily assemblage of rock art and alignments, geometry, mathematics, and, and all kinds of harbingers of, of design that should not exist in an ancient sandstone set of cliffs and buttes and mesas, And then you can take it from there.
4: Yes. I will show you clear evidence that, uh, let's see my, let's go to my slide number two and this is looking down on Arches park. I'm going to go through this and show you, I'm telling you, you folks are going to be, as enthralled as i have been and trying to sit on this has been the hardest thing i've ever done um it's so astounding so slide number 3 just shows um because it's all about the dragons and this is a video game uh where the, you, you see the a guy riding the back of that red dragon and uh you know this hero character uh, what I'm seeing is about a dozen characters. These are the main characters. It's Hera, this reptilian woman, half human, and other folks from these other races of beings, you know, completely different, a wide variety of ETs. And they are... I will show you just over and over again so that you become familiar with these people as well. And you get to know them and recognize them very easily so that there's, you don't look at erosion anymore. You're going to say, Oh my God, there she is again. And look how, and and some of the, the the way they, uh, anyway, let's go to slide three. A like I said before, Lara Croft, um, I You know, I get this picture in my mind. You spent 10 years uh, gaming and this is part of the preparation was you were looking for these things in the game. You have to, you know, Lara Croft has to push over this stone monolith to get it in place so that the light comes down and shines through the hole and then it lights up the next entrance that's hidden. So it's all this stuff. And in all of this, we also have this, I'm calling it, it's, prismatic architecture and okay let's go to slide four um, we only have a few minutes I was going to
0: say John up. you realize we're not going to get through all these
4: so no, pick, so pick um, the best okay well I, I, I'd i like to have a few minutes just to go through each slide go, but, ahead, uh,
1: go
4: maybe, ahead Okay, um, so yeah Tower of Babel the, um, this is so when I look at this I see the mom and the dad and then the family uh, they're all about the, the family, these families, and like I said, there's, there's a, a, a group of characters that are appearing in all of this. So if you go to slide number five... So I we're looking
0: this. at epigees in huge stone structures in Archer's Park, and your model is these were designed by some really amazing civilization
4: to tell a story... They tell a story, Um, what they do is they uh, carve up the ground and sculpt it as well, and then they extrude these islands or monuments as part of that ground sculpture, so it's very 3D, and this is why when you use the sundial to move it across the sky, for example, on this Uh, Tower of Babel monument. When you you say Sundial, we're talking a Google Earth program now, right? Google Earth. And uh, if you are standing looking at this monument, you're on the ground and you're looking at it facing kind of northwest. You see that from right to left, the story unfolds as if you were turning pages because all of this 3D artwork, all these sculptures The the multi-layered is incredible. So you see as the sun moves all the sculptures and shadows and everything's changing and you see these scenes unfold before your eyes and it's truly magical. And you get to the, the left end of the monument and then like chapter two or act two is on the other side of the monument. You have the same play where you can watch the scene and it tells this huge story and they, this prismatic technology is built into all these structures in this remarkable way, and it marks these entrances that we can go into, and they have this holographic prismatic technology that reminds me of the moon, and that's why I, I'll need a few minutes after the break, Richard, to go through the rest of my slides. I can well, do why
0: with. don't we – I just wanted a preview. We're going to do two days Six hours on this. I don't yeah. want to take up a lot of time tonight to do Utah. Utah okay. is a Utah is a window on an epoch of human history that is not on, is not known, not acknowledged. It, it, there's nothing in the literature that talks about what John has been finding, and that's why there needs to be some real science. But the reason I wanted to include this in in our discussion tonight is because we have a whole set of lost civilizations, huge amounts of time, missing history, either deliberately or through entropy. And this is only one tiny accessible window in the middle of the United States, more or less, that we can get to. And it's hard to get people even to pay attention to be serious about what's right touchable. You know, you can drive there with a Bronco, you can camp out. You can take a drone. You can, In other words, to get the art and archaeology done on Earth is easy compared to trying to figure out what's on the moon. But it's very difficult because we're up against the barrier, and we're a barrier of time here at the top of the hour and a hard break. We're up against the barrier of what people will believe is possible. And so far, we're a very vocal minority of people who believe that any of this is possible.
4: Indeed, well put.
0: And on that note, we basically are at the top of the hour, so why don't we cause a pause, and we will bring everybody up to speed when we get back to the other side of midnight um, after we take this very short promotional break. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. We shall return. Welcome back, everyone, on the other side of midnight. Literally, that's where we are right now in the land of enchantments. It is the witching hour, midnight. And anything is possible after midnight. Okay, let me kind of summarize where we are. We're looking at a set of extraordinary megalithic structures on the moon. Um, Most of my panel tonight agrees that these are what they appear to be. We have one, one dissenter and I'll be very happy someday when Barbara says, okay, they're there because it's coming. You just have to be patient. And uh, I've had to be patient for a very long time to wait for the uh, South Koreans to begin taking images. In fact, let me start out with that. All right. Let me, let me go to the South Korean imagery, which is in my, items number let me get the right number here um you want to go back to the other side of midnight click on the banner on the main page that takes you to the show page click on the uh, right under the banner there uh, a line that says fast links to items click on my name and you want to scroll down to item number 12. this was back in 19 i'm sorry 2009 uh the image on the right the image on the left is from like 1960-61 that's an image from the cia uh of their imagery from the corona spacecraft the satellite put up to look for rockets and missiles and airfields in the soviet union to see when they might try to uh you know undertake a world war three well i found through a long story that we've talked about on the show several times before, uh, that not only did the CIA and the Air Force not just take pictures of the old Soviet Union, they, for some reason, took close-up images across quarter million miles of the moon. And unless you understand that there's something that has a very high intelligence quotient related to national survival, i.e. ET ruins on the moon it may be hard to kind of wrap your mind around that the right hand image in number 12 is a color infrared photograph uh, a digital image from the lacrosse mission which nasa sent to the moon in uh, uh, fall of uh, 2009 and the camera was one of the cameras they had many on the spacecraft but one of the cameras was a thermal imaging camera meaning you could take a picture and then you could assign colors to temperature. And so in this image, the blue is bitingly cold, like uh, 250 below zero Fahrenheit. The green is somewhat warmer, maybe only, you know, minus a hundred. The yellow is kind of like room temperature, 70, 80, 90. The red is high noon, on the moon which is 250 fahrenheit above zero and then at the very outer boundary of the limb of the moon the curved horizon we have a yellow layer and i looked at the technology i looked at the cameras i've looked at things like uh, image spreading and all that and it's obvious that the lacrosse mission with their mid-infrared camera captured a thermal image of the remains of the dome over the entire moon. Because if you're looking geometrically, anything to the right of the red, of the right-hand image in number 12, should be red. It should be high noon, it should be high temperature, the sun should be overhead, and it should be broiling, literally broiling hot. Instead, we have this much cooler layer in a uniform um, uh, circumference around the curved horizon of the moon. And the way that's explained in this model is that the glass is now so beaten and so destroyed that it's got lots and lots and lots and lots of holes. Well, if you have lots of holes, if you heat up glass next to a hole... What happens? The heated glass will radiate infrared energy out through the hole, and so you have a diminution of temperature over the entire structure because it's basically made of trillions and trillions and trillions of little holes like, like super, super Swiss cheese. So the idea that there is a lower temperature layer somehow hanging above the brightest, highest temperature surface materials on the moon at high noon on the moon is only explicable in terms of some material which can retain its solid structure at 250 uh, above zero Fahrenheit. um, uh, I'm sorry, 250 degrees Fahrenheit or above. And that is not ice that is got to be something material like glass something architectural something semi transparent something that can operate in the infrared the way we're seeing in this image so that's where the kind of state of the art of my thinking in terms of a lunar wide dome came full circle back in 2009 which is when lacrosse gave us this stunning infrared image of the dome Then uh, a few months ago, uh, about seven months after they launched in August from uh, South Korea, the um, South Koreans, when their Denuri moon mission took the pictures you're seeing in item number 13, which is now visible light, but it's polarized, meaning it's vibrating in one geometric plane. And whereas the glass, when you heat it up, It'll be visible regardless of the geometry or the filtering. In an optical image, it's polarized. Unless you have the right polarization, the structures will not be visible because they're radiating in a geometric fashion that the cameras simply cannot capture. So that's what we see in 13. In number 14, you see the left-hand image, which is the De full moon image with copernicus now in the center of the disk that's that small bright crater meaning that the image was taken not from the earth but from a long ways away in space as the denuri spacecraft was moving from earth to moon over a period of like four months and on the right hand side you see a chinese adaptation of the denuri image made up to look like the um, uh, Chinese flag uh, with the with the yellow uh, stars etc cetera, etc cetera. and yet around the horizon you can see that someone has taken as the substrate for that comparison a very similar if not identical Denuri image gave it color and accentuated. The brilliant glowing ring around the Southern Hemisphere, which of course is the ancient domes. And the fact that the Chinese and the Koreans have some kind of quiet thing going on in the back room where the Chinese freely use the South Korean image to reveal again in a very Emily Dickinson fashion what no one is supposed to know exists around the moon is pretty phenomenal. I mean, it's amazing. In fact, it almost gets me thinking that maybe there's a huge genetic or cultural familial decision being made here. And as someone said earlier in our conversation tonight, maybe the folks in the Far East, the Asians in the Koreas, in the Vietnams, In China, in Japan, in other parts of the uh, Far East. Maybe there's a cultural heritage which is now finding expression that they, the South Koreans, are the culture which has published publicly brilliant objectified imagery of this ancient lunar mega architecture. But again, have not said anything because it's not time. Andrew, let me ask you a question. When I sent you item number 15 and 16, what were your thoughts? Andrew? Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I have my pot down. Uh, Okay. Go ahead.
5: Okay. I'm here. Um, well, again, Richard, I mean, it's, it's enhanced, but I do see geometric forms along the limb, and I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, that, that's just – I keep seeing the same kinds of things, and same with 16. Like if you – I mean, it almost looks like a pyramid, but it's, it's – I see it. I see these well, layering. Well, 16
0: is a close-up of the right side of 16.
5: Yeah, exactly.
0: And look at all the perspective. I know. Look at how the detail is sharp to the left and then as you move along the horizon uh, presumably looking farther and farther away the detail, the geometry gets smaller and smaller yeah. and smaller like perspective. Now there's only yeah. one or two explanations for this this graphic. Okay, This appears on the official Denuri Moon website. It's part of the South Korean's presentation of what they're finding to the world without comment and what they've done obviously is arted it up they put titles on it they put an earth on it they put the spacecraft on it it looks like a piece of art right
5: yes it does
0: except there's too much real information in the in 15 and 16 which is 16 is the close up of 15 on the right In other words, if it it is art, the artist had a stunning example, a model to do their art from and so it's as good as an original photograph. My feeling is these are original color imagery from Denuri of the moon, of the dome, of the structures, of the things that stick up way above the lunar horizon around the moon. Think of a series of towers or more likely glass super pyramids and this one appears to be over a mare so it goes along with my idea that the mare the dark areas that we see on the moon now they used to be the foundations of the ancient cities that were separately domed in something destroyed them and we're seeing the few fragmentary traces of what they may have been way back in the day before they were – before the moon was brought to the solar system, before 600 million years ago. Yes, no, maybe?
3: Well, Richard, I'd toss in some corroborative data. The uh, Oh, I love corroborative rocks. data. Oh. Oh, hi, I'm here Yeah, I'm here I, I had a problem with my damaged appendage So I was um, <laughs> Had to Do a couple things uh, The um,
0: Yeah, the the Apollo
3: pictures That, you know, you uh, Got Fixated on early on I mean, the ones taken by the astronauts On the surface, where they're standing in front of Invisible things, which when you bring it out You go, oh, look at that uh, those those glass structures are very similar to these, and since that's completely different in terms of photography and preservation and everything else, uh, that's kind of corroborative data. I, I would buy I, that, I, yes. And I also is, think
5: – oh, sorry, Ron. Yeah. Let me just on you. No, no, no. Go ahead, Andrew. I'm stepping in. Well, you. I mean, to, again, to burrow down a little deeper, um, I've had this impression, if I just flip over to, to – where my thinking is with Alan bean, he being an artist mm-hmm. like myself and he he did this extraordinary painting called our world at my fingertips um and he- I'll actually have it as part of my my items, but he puts his hand he, he well he did a painting of i'm sure he did it because i think he just, he has these these elaborate descriptions of all of his paintings actually on his on on the website that sort of houses all his stuff, and he puts his fingers like we do with you know, things in the distance on Earth, like if you want to put your finger around the moon. He did that with the Earth. But every time I over well, hang at on, why
0: why don't we go to your imagery? Uh yeah. click on Andrew. That will take you to Andrew's items on the uh guest page. Which number are we looking at?
5: Uh let me get to it, Richard. Oh, okay. it's number five. Uh, it's number five. Number five, yeah. Oh wow yeah Richard. I just get this impression. I know we we've, we've talked about this before, but I get this impression that not only do these astronauts Ron stand beside this
1: mm-hmm.
5: whatever this well i I think I agree with Richard. I think it's a some kind of silica you know silicate right it 's a glass right but he,
0: well just, again, again, we have science data yeah. of, of the eight hundred and fifty pounds of materials brought back moon rocks. Which someone referenced earlier, of which only a tiny fraction have really been analyzed. They've been so miserly in cutting the samples and slicing into the rocks, and they wanted to save most of the material for when future technology would be adequate to, you know, teasing out the very last data bits of what the moon was trying to tell us. So they've been very, very careful to not try to analyze all 850 pounds. Right? Yeah, yeah. So what they found, though, is in the so-called finds, which are, is basically the dirt, not the rocks themselves, but the dirt that they were sitting in. And they brought a lot of dirt back, both deliberately and inadvertently on their suits. 50% of the weight of the soil of the moon is glass. Yeah, Little and, tiny beads yeah. of glass. Now, the conventional explanation is, okay, when you hit a silicate planet surface with a, with a rock, an asteroid, the temperatures create glass. Okay, that's one way to do it. But remember my discussion earlier on, the they think that something smacked into the proto-Earth and produced the moon is because they have to account for the high temperatures. Well, you get glass also by making it. At high temperatures. So if we're looking at artificial as opposed to natural, the weight of the lunar soil that's 50% glass is a huge clue that there's a lot more that's still sticking up overhead that hasn't fallen down and or melted from impact.
5: Yeah, and Richard, my, my point here, and I agree with you, is I think Alan Bean touched this stuff. I, I, I think he's basically recording it, and I actually did a, a little Well, one. hang on.
0: Remember what he did with okay. his paintings?
5: He would exactly. Use, he would use well, – you, you tell
0: them. You're the artist. Go ahead.
5: No, 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 no. You go ahead, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add something at the end that you might miss, so go, please. Well, he,
0: he, he, would, he, he took a lunar boot, and he would make imprints in the acrylic and in the oils, a, a, a 3D form of him walking on the moon. He also took materials, you know, powders from the spacesuits, and sprinkled it into the paintings so there's bits of moon in the moon paintings that Alan Bean did. And given that 50% of that material is glass, he basically was fusing original lunar dome glass to his artist representation on Earth in the 20th century of ancient lunar dome glass.
5: And Richard, I believe in one of his, as I said, very detailed, elaborate descriptions of his paintings and in his processes, I think he described this little finishing touch of adding the moon dust, <laughs> like pixie dust, magic dust. Yes. I'm sure he wrote that. So if we really quickly go to my number six, I I did a little, I made a little animation. If people click on that, and I did a little animation of what you, Richard, you and I talked about this. That if this, if they touch this sort of cigarette smoke thin, you know, delicate material, it would just literally just go poof. Oh, it, it, and, it, it would totally disintegrate. Yes, and that's my little video. I just wanted to get people to you know this idea that if this is real and this is true, and we're sure showing a lot of vector points that point that way, this little video might. Give us a sense of what Alan Bean was really doing on the moon. And Richard, I'd like to add one more thing. Um, and maybe you can add something to this. I was just um, – I was trying to find a particular um, quote, and I stumbled on this. It's, I'll, I'll read it. It's very short. This is from NASA, the NASA home. It's called Beyond Earth, Expanding Human Presence into the Solar System. And this is called Apollo Chronicles, The Mysterious Smell of Moon Dust. I'll just read a couple paragraphs. Long after the last Apollo astronaut left the moon, a, myster- a mystery lingers. Why does the moon dust smell like gunpowder? Moon dust, I wish I could send you some, says Apollo 17 astronaut Gene Cernan. Just a thimbleful, scooped fresh off the lunar surface. It's amazing stuff. Feel it. It's soft like snow, yet strangely abrasive. Taste it. Not half bad, according to Apollo 16 astronaut John Young. Smith it. It smells like spent gunpowder," says Cernan. "How do you sniff and they, uh, moon dust?" And they go into this. Richard, is there anything that you could just explain to us why moon dust? When they got back, because again, obviously they're going back into their module, and, and you know they take their helmets off, and and oh,
0: their their suits were covered with this dust. In fact, it's going to be one of the biggest problems for you know building the moon base at the south pole in the artemis program because this stuff will get into everything it's incredibly fine like micron size millionth of a, of a meter in size it's abrasive because it's jagged it's little tiny shards of glass and what does glass do it cuts so it will it will destroy spacesuits, it will destroy seals, it will destroy machinery, it'll destroy pumps, it'll destroy motors, it'll destroy everything unless they can figure out a way to corral the moon dust, which is really fragmented, pulverized, hold it, stone material, I believe.
5: So do you have any explanation why it would the, the astronauts would sort of collectively say, Smells like spent gunpowder. Is there anything any elements or anything in there? That well, way?
0: what is gunpowder made of? It's made of carbon. I used to make it to to build model rockets and launch them. It's a wonder mm-hmm. I have all my digits <laughs> tonight, which I do. <laughs> uh, very dangerous stuff to make your own gunpowder. Uh or black powder as we called it. But it's carbon, it's sulfur, and it's uh there's a third one, Barbara, do you remember? Uh potassium nitrate. All right. In fact, there's a very brilliant scene in one of the Star Trek original episodes where where uh, Kirk has to beat the Gorn, and he makes basically a a bazooka out of natural materials, and he makes gunpowder and uses it. Very, very, very effective, you know, plot device. The only thing I can think of is that some of the chemistry of the dome material. When you bring it into an atmosphere and it can outgas, it has a kind of a molecular memory of other um. materials that it also used to house. And remember, our sensory system, Georgia, maybe you can help me with this. When, in, in, in ghost appearances or apparitions or where people from the other side try to communicate with the living here, the sense of smell is so important in these occurrences i'm almost wondering if something similar happened to the astronauts when they sniffed this stuff for the first time as conscious beings in maybe millions of years
7: rich richard
0: yes barbara uh, go ahead
7: yeah before before georgia answers i just want to remind everybody if i'm not incorrect Gunpowder was invented by the
3: br- drumroll
7: Chinese.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes,
3: and I they knew. only used it for fireworks. Yeah. yeah, for
1: rockets,
7: basically.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah for fire. Yeah, but they did not use. It. They did not. And by the way, uh, I have to say this at some point: the Han Chinese that uh, are most of the population of China now, they have nothing to do with the races that were there in those ancient times. That was completely different. And that's that's uh, anthropologically uh, solid. You know, they came in. La- they came in later, so they that, that do we know
0: the... where from? Uh,
3: the best guess is Korea, which uh, you know, in its own translation, which of course would Korean explain. Hang on,
0: hang on, hang on. Which of course would explain yeah. the Chinese <laughs> quietly purloining the Korean image of the moon domes to basically take them over. In their art, yeah,
3: that would fit. Yeah, that would fit. I mean, Koreans are, you know, visibly today, uh, different in appearance from the uh, Chinese in general. You know, the Chinese have gotten taller, but they still look Chinese, just like they did 150 years ago. The Koreans are, you know, their physiognomy. We need to find the libraries. So, yeah, yeah, see, I, I, you know, I agree with you on the dome pretty much, uh, in most respects, but. The, I'm, I'm very, very reticent to sign on the idea of the libraries because I can't find any representation in um, Earth history when anybody has ever bothered to do that. So
0: it's, wait, wait, uh, wait. You know, the to, idea... That wait, wait, wait. To, to do what? To write to down stuff for future generations? To write to down actual stuff.
3: libraries for the future.
0: But they're automatically libraries for the future. I, I'm not saying... Again, remember, primitive terrestrial analogs notwithstanding, if you're a super civilization and you're running around mm-hmm. playing god and you're redesigning solar systems and you are basically god to the children your creation will allow to flourish as part of their instruction manual, would you not would you not leave, leave certain materials in archives so that they get to the point where they can you know, begin to appreciate what's going on around them. They have some kind of solid scientific basis for their speculations. It costs nothing if you were would, yeah, if you
3: were being honest with them that they were actually going to be the the inheritors of something, but if you were just exerting control over them for your own purposes, then you'd tell them anything you wouldn't necessarily follow through with it.
0: Okay, um, we are at the bottom of, of the hour. We've got basically a minute before I have to go to break. So, uh, Barbara, did you want to jump into something?
7: Well, um, be sure and bring Georgia on at the uh, top of the, the the next segment. But I think after that, we it's the perfect time to talk about the bean print. That's what with we've been setting up.
8: And I have a, I have a perfect segue into that for you, Barb. Okay. <laughs>
3: Okay, guys. I'd like to put in a, I'd like to put in a uh, request voucher for a minute. I'd like to cut because it only takes like a minute for me to explain why I put the pictures up. I did, so there's only a couple of them. Okay, and then everybody yeah. can move on. To
8: I wanna, stuff. okay, I, w- I wanna hear more about the Ganymede
0: picture, Ron. Oh, wait till you see the Ganymede oh. stuff. Okay, I'll throw that in there. Yeah, totally. Okay. All thank right, guys, thank you. Everybody, take a pause. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We are discussing why should we care that someone with extraordinary technological skills left extraordinary stuff within reach of our current limited rocket technology on the moon. We shall return.
2: The other side of midnight.com.
0: And welcome back everyone to this last half hour on the other side of midnight for this Saturday night, Sunday morning, April 1st. And second so Georgia you're yeah
8: (laughs) yeah I wanted to say something about uh, the sense of smell here Uh, esoterically it's the newest of our senses still in the process of being developed but the thing about the sense of smell is it immediately uh, connects you with the quality of the thing for instance uh, in terms of survival If you can smell rotten meat, you don't have to put it in your mouth and get sick. It's an immediate uh, telling of the particular quality or frequency. We know, for instance, in psychology that a smell can evoke a memory that is like a reliving of the experience, not just trying to remember it. You know, the smell of fresh bread can bring you back to your grandmother's kitchen in, in a very visceral way that just trying to remember it doesn't do. It's very interesting to me that Bean would put moon dust in his paintings we know for instance in homeopathic medications you've got a particular essence that's titrated down and down and down and down but it connects you with the vibratory frequency of the original thing. So You know, the old adage, metaphysically, energy follows thought. By being putting that moon dust actually in the paintings, he's making psychological uh, connections uh, with the viewers of that painting. And as you said, Richard, we have all kinds of stories about uh, the departed Announcing their presence with a smell. In the Far East, you have masters announcing their presence with the smell of roses or lilies or whatever. So, smell connects us to things in a way that nothing else does.
0: That's exactly what I wanted you to reinforce because I'm wondering: Is this impression of gunpowder? When I first uh, heard this back during Apollo, when we were, you know, finishing up the final missions. I asked myself, why would materials in a vacuum, thoroughly mixed, exposed to ultraviolet, to high energy radiation, all that, why would they smell like gunpowder? Which, as I said, comes uh, because of certain specific chemistry. And I'm wondering if there's something more to the smell of gunpowder than is kind of maybe... Acknowledged by conventional chemistry, what if that smell, Georgia, was triggered by something in each of the astronauts that's symbolic? Because what is the symbology of gunpowder in our civilization?
8: Well exactly and and you know wh- when you smell something wait, wait, wait. You, you're a- you're you're actually taking in molecules of that essence into your being into your body
0: what if the gunpowder smell is a symbolic triggering because of something horrific and warlike that occurred on the moon not physically associated with the regolith but literally is it's triggering a memory in the exactly. astronauts themselves
8: exactly and, it's and, triggering and, a
0: memory and symbolically that's how it's coming out that's how it's expressed but it isn't really relating to literal gunpowder it's right, relating right. to the
8: gunpowder gunpowder is a is a uh, an olfactory symbol exactly of of, of it's the closest thing in our language that we can come up with to the real thing, whatever it was.
5: Yeah. And Georgia and Richard, let me read this part. Curiously back Uh on earth, moon dust has no smell. Huh? What? Hundreds of pounds. What? There are hundreds of pounds of moon dust at the lunar sample lab in Houston. There Lofgren has held dusty moon rocks with his own hands. He's sniffed the rocks, sniffed the air, sniffed his hands. It does not smell like gunpowder, he says.
0: Holy cow. That means it was only limited to the crews on the moon while they were there.
5: Yep.
3: Wow. Richard, what was the percentage of oxygen in the air in the capsules?
0: Uh, It was uh, 100%. It was 5 PSI, 100%, because they couldn't handle – the weight of the technology to make a complex gas mixture of nitrogen and oxygen and water vapor and argon and all that, so they said settle- so when they
3: exposed something in that atmosphere it would
0: oxidize like crazy it would oxidize would like crazy smell. yes yes
3: and I, I do have a chemistry point just to throw in because I heard about it, that uh, uh, smell was so late to develop esoterically. Uh, In terms of biology, I believe all the uh, physical senses are derived, uh, or all the sensory things like your eyes and everything, are derived originally from the nose. The the sense of smell is the first most primeval uh, sense organ uh, in a physical body, according to the biologists. Interesting. It, you know, there are organisms that can't see, can, you know, that okay. haven't gotten to that point which still have a sense of smell, so to speak. So uh, it's, it was the first detector. Yeah,
0: you know, Andrew, let's go uh, back to your items because I see some interesting yeah. things here. I don't want to let fall between the cracks.
5: Yeah, and I know we want to get to Ganymede pretty quick here too, so let me <laughs> get myself organized. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we can go quickly to my number two. Um, just hit that. Um, My items. I mean the first two images, Richard, are from your uh, imagery that you had shared with me. I don't know if you want to give a little.
0: Well, this is from Apollo 10. These are black and white Hasselblads, which we scan from the negatives uh, made of uh, generational prints, then enlarge them and focus in on details. And there's all kinds of bewildering geometric structure visible outside the window of the Apollo spacecraft on every mission and I chose Apollo 10 because it was the earliest first after Apollo 8 where they went over Sinus Medi and there's stunning stuff all over Sinus Medi which in black and white echoes what we're now seeing from the South Koreans in that color so-called artistic view.
5: Yeah, they look like glass towers to me. And it reminds me of something like New York City, literally. I mean, shattered but and ragged and jagged, mm-hmm. but if you look at the image, it looks like it. The middle two images are something that I found in someone's article. It was a blog. Unfortunately, they didn't label what that was. I don't know if you know what it is, Richard, but what I noticed... Well, the, is, uh,
0: the, the uh, object on the right is a Surveyor 3 image taken of the sun and the solar corona after sunset. It's a it's a close-up of the horizon, because the most amazing thing was when they took photographs of the sun or, or, or space above the sun after the sun went down on the moon, they expected to see nothing, right? Black space. Instead, yeah. there's all this complex glistening geometry that they mislabeled as the corona, but in fact, it's the geometric scattering of light, which is still in sunlight uh, from from the dome, into the darkness where the Surveyor spacecraft was seen. And you can see uh, the scan lines of the primitive Surveyor television camera kind of slanting down on the right in the right-hand image. The left-hand image, I think, is, uh, is probably an Apollo image taken from some mission of the horizon, showing the horizon is not simple. It's highly geometric, it's translucent, and it's made of geometric glass
5: and these incredible repeating i call them gothic arches oh yeah you can
0: see the arch in fact i saw some arches early on in some of the apollo imagery the problem is it's not as replicable as some of the other structures so i you know haven't really belabored the point but there's every imaginable geometry in this architecture you can you can imagine
5: yeah there's so much variety and what i did is the last image is, is an illustration that I did to try to pick up on this idea of this structure, this what I'm calling this sort of um, moon cobweb that just kind of covers the whole the whole surface. So that was my my way of interpreting it. If we come out of that and go So number three, number four A and number four B, I tried to tell um, sort of I tried to get into the wh
0: which, which numbers do you want?
5: Uh, well, I wanted to summarize what it is first. It's 3, 4A, and 4B, and we Got can it. start with 3 – yeah, and what I did is I created a little tiny little graphic short, graphic novel of, of – and I won't read it through, but it's – my idea is that this is Alan Bean exploring the moonscape and sort of wandering off a bit, not too far, and he sees in 3, um, if you just zoom in, this incredible I, – I call it um, – Well, I'll read it. For there, rising out of the moon's regolith and stretching for miles across is a ghostly patchwork of faint but strangely present hanging forms. Bean, who had been working alongside Conrad, served his role as mission pilot, as a scientist and military man to perfection. But this, how could it be? What was it? In his attempt to grapple with this incomprehensible moment, the sudden reality that we are not alone in the cosmos slams into his consciousness. This is my writing of of my imagining him Sure, sure. Looking into infinity, his thoughts drift back to his childhood. The sky is as black and shiny as patent leather shoes he wore to Sunday school as a boy. And and, mm. and that's yeah. And then if we jump out of that, go to four A. He, he in in my imagination, he's approached this this cigarette smoke thin, you know, vast, just climbing into the into the into the moon's night, you know, sky, and he reaches out to touch it and and that's you can, people can go and read the story <laughs> it's, like, the, it's po- like
0: that great scene out of 2001
5: yes exactly Isn't that's that what extended? humans do
0: okay we don't have a lot of time yeah. so Barbara we've been talking about being the artist being the astronaut being the revealer what have you got for us on the subject of Alan Bean
7: well okay so uh, if everybody could go to my items and you want to Remind people how to do that?
0: You go to the banner uh, on the homepage of the other side of Midnight, click on the banner, that takes you to the guest page, uh, look for Barbara's name and the fast links to items under that banner, and it will take you right to where she wants to talk.
7: Okay. Um, First, allow me to say that um, we're going to go to number two, but all the other items under my items, really we 're supposed to be for tomorrow night, <laughs> so uh, Keith is just going to repeat my items here tonight for tomorrow night's show on uh, on the implications of the indictment of trump okay okay okay, so um, what 's important here is my item number two for tonight 's show. And um, we've mentioned this a number of times before, but it's particularly relevant now with this latest discussion. And that is that, um, gosh, time flies, but it was at least four or five months ago now, Richard, wasn't it, Um, that I, you know, went to sleep thinking what what can be done to raise funds um, for whatever it takes, regardless of what we think this apparent dome is <laughs> um, there are different ideas about what it could be and its source and all of that. But the bottom line is we need funds to
0: know for sure. Well, we Whatever need. never well, actually to know- the reason we need funds is because ultimately the answer to this is going to come down to science missions right. to the moon. We need to alert sure. the people going to the moon for what to look for. We need to test the model and this painting gives us the wherewithal or this print to test the model by having sufficient funds to mount a campaign that's adequate to the job, which is huge right
7: right so so uh, i went to you know I went to sleep uh, it's kind of kind of frightening to realize that you sometimes do your best thinking when you're unconscious, <laughs> but that's true of me. And so I went to sleep wondering what what can be done to raise funds that is appropriate to the other side of midnight. And I woke up with this idea um, to go look to see if there were any of the paintings or prints of Alan Bean, who was, of course, one of the uh, Apollo astronauts himself, as well as an amazing artist. And lo and behold, there are about three major websites that are outlets for what you can still purchase. Um, that Alan Bean created. And um, it turns out that, you know, I checked out all three of them and there was one that I liked the best. So uh, I called the number and I talked to a very nice man um, who uh, I told him what I was interested in doing and he said uh, he recommended this print. So if everyone is looking at my item number two, this is a print by Alan of an actual painting by Alan Bean. It's called Reaching for the Stars. Uh, and what's important about this print is that around the edges of the print, and I believe if you click on that print, yes, it opens up larger, you're going to be able to see that there are uh, actual, actual signatures of 24 of the uh, NASA astronauts around the edge of the, uh, of the uh, white um, frame. Mercury, of the
0: frame. Gemini, Apollo, yes. and the space yes. shuttle.
7: Yes, exactly. And uh, those are, I am assured that those are actual signatures. It's a print in the middle of an actual painting that has already been sold. But around the edges are actual signatures of 24 of the NASA astronauts so um Richard and the other side of midnight are raising funds with and I'm putting it in quotes an auction because it's not a traditional auction but if you if you go to the home page now this is the show page but if you go to the other side of and then click just that's the that's the home page and scroll down just a little bit there is a link to donate to the other side of midnight and you will there read the instructions that show how and who eventually will get this print and the answer is it is when the goal is reached the ultimate goal of the amount of funds Richard wants to raise. When the goal is reached, whoever has donated the most receives the print. Now, obviously, the goal is not to get the prints. The goal is to donate to the other side of midnight. Because the funds are needed to get the proper outreach to these, isn't it, nine artists who are going There are are nine
0: artists that Musk is taking to the moon. I am in contact with one of them in Britain, who is a female photographer, who has been interviewed by my friend Howard Hughes, who was a a personage on the BBC and Channel 4 and whatever. And we've arranged that he's going to talk to this artist, who's a photographer. He will open the dialogue in, you know, why did she want to go to the moon? what kind of historical things are she going to do. And then through the back door, we're going to start shipping to him to give to her the information photographically as to what's waiting. And all she has to do is take the right set of cameras and polarizing filters. And this young woman can make extraordinary history by photographing from 120 miles up these stunning crystalline domes that are still partially existing
7: Mm -hmm. right so that that's the very first uh uh, mission or project uh that the funds that we're asking to be donated again when you go to the home page which is the other side of midnight.com scroll down just a little bit and it's simple click on the donate button and it is tax deductible so the most you can do please do um I don't know what other projects Richard has in mind, but that is the very the very first one. And I just like to, and I want to thank everybody in advance for donating what you can on the homepage. Um, I do want to just mention Richard, and I don't want to go into it tonight, because I know eventually we'll do a whole show on it. But I do have an announcement, and that is that I have connected big time with Maria Wheatley. And yesterday... At Giza, she did her dowsing for the serious point with me.
0: Oh, my. Wow. Ooh.
7: Yeah. Yeah, that's really exciting. So I don't have the results yet, but I'll let you know when we do.
0: Yeah, she also did some measurements in the in the Great Pyramid, and we'll be, you know, kind of unveiling all of that in the coming weeks. Uh, but we first have to get her home.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> okay, Ron. We want to go yeah. from the moon to Ganymede. Start out with your item yes. number one. Okay. This is
3: uh, another one of my um,
0: speedy presentations, but that's perfect for this one. Uh, that is, I believe, a picture taken by the Juno probe. And no, 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 strange. no, 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 no. no. Number one is an old Voyager image taken back in 1981 during the Voyager flyby. Uh, I can look up the number, but it's a, it's a PIA number.
3: Uh, item. You think that's one of the Voyager
0: ones? I know it is. I was there. <laughs> okay. Well, I was at JPL. Okay. I was not at, at Jupiter. Okay. But no, well,
3: in any case, if you look closely at it, uh, you can kind of see the dome, especially in the, especially in the upper quadrant there. And you realize that, as Richard said, it's in much better shape, at least on that side, uh, than the, um, anything around the moon. And see, my personal theory is that this was the first attempt at something. And I have to say there's at least three scenarios that all work as to where this structural stuff on either of those satellites
0: came from. Well, I don't think they're the only uh, examples. I think we just haven't found more uh, planetary bodies, moon satellites, whatever, which the ancient ancient guys domed in because I think it was their kind of one-size-fits-all to the environmental problem of how do you keep an atmosphere if you don't have – long-term anti-gravity remember the generators can fail if the generators yeah. fail you're 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 whatever die of, of of suffocation so you want a structure which even okay. if technology goes away the atmosphere will remain and a dome does that a physical well, glass dome
3: i need i need i need this minute
0: yes the uh but
3: remember every civilization has variations in their technology and i'm positing that there has been more than one civilization that has passed through here, not necessarily <clears throat> engendered here, that uh, was able to, like, move planets around and so forth. And they used each other's leftovers. So that that's considered a factor. But in any case, yes, it is a very nice picture. That's why I put it up there. Uh, the two pictures uh, – well, there's one, black, one other black and white one there. Which is the, from one of the Artemis images and properly aligned. So we're back to our own moon now. Yes. And, uh, yeah, this is the other joint. And the reason that there's two pictures of Mars there taken by, relatively recently, uh, by, um, the high rise cameras is that, uh, the one, the second one, number four image there, that has the exact same architecture especially up near the top, as what you see in the Artemis picture, indicating to me that that was the same civilization, Hmm. whichever one it was, uh, that visited those places. Or, or,
0: or, 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 or or its form follows function. Uh, This is megalithic
3: architecture fundamentally, so I mean it's...
0: it's, Well, if, 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 if you're dealing with a certain environment and your solution has certain architectural elements, it doesn't matter what culture brings their intelligence to the problem they're going to wind up with the same architecture because that's how you solve that problem
3: sure well rather than yeah rather than wasting your time uh, arguing over the point one way or the other okay fine similar but it but uh recognizable similar uh and uh in both cases you go well okay why don't they land their damn uh rovers there at either one of those locations. Uh, the, the the image numbers didn't make it onto the image, but the, if, you, if you, you know, en- enlarge them or something, you'll see the, the actual file number, and you could go look at them and see all the details. They were both taken from, like, 159 miles above the surface of Mars because I like the low-orbit shots the best. But uh, that was just for comparison with the Artemis picture. Okay, And... Uh, Item See, number I told five
0: Item in a because, I mean what else you say number, about the picture. All right, you got a you got a false color image number five, which is Tycho Central Peak. How is that written? Oh
3: yeah, that was something I just added. That's nothing that's not my image. It's simply a link to the posting uh that is up there on the um, LROC, uh the lunar orbiter lunar reconnaissance orbiter page. But I just noticed this afternoon, and I asked Keith Dad just to add li- just a link there. So I am going to look at that picture. But it's the only good picture I've ever seen of the central, stru- central pile of structure in Tycho. In fact, the earlier pictures, it's practically blacked out. It's been driving me crazy for years. And here they've got this lovely uh albite cover by um version of it and lots of different well, uh,
0: the Well, the, 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 the colors are not real. The colors are obviously assigned to altitude. The red is highest and the white is the lowest yes. and the gray is the for the 60 mile wide crater, which is Tycho.
3: Yeah, that's all on that page. There's several different variations yep. of it and they explain that and they've got a little color chart and so it's like 1,400 feet high
0: at its uh, height. Of.
6: See, but, when, we, when uh, we come
0: back to the concept of epochs, different eras Mm -hmm. of inhabitation of the moon or other planets Mm -hmm. in the solar system long before we arrived. Uh, There's real interesting geometric elements in some of these so-called central peaks that has made me think for a long time that some of the big craters may not be impact craters at all. They may be the remains of ancient domed cities, which had a central peak to hold up the dome and a circular surround to anchor it. And they basically were small versions or big versions of the kind of agrodomes that Ron and I have been discussing for Mars for many, many years.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the uh, from what I know of impact craters, I believe normally you get the thrust in the middle if whatever it is coming down explodes above the surface and sort of splashes shockwave in there, and then there's a reverberation from the rim of what's been dug out, and it causes that upthrust. Okay. And, and you know what?
5: You, go ahead, on, Richard. You know, what's, you know what's really interesting about this Tycho image? Because of the coloring and referring back to Jonathan's presentation from Arches Park, this darn thing yeah. looks like a dog on with its front paws up, and it's sitting on its backside. I mean, I, again, that's a projection. Okay,
0: we've got three minutes left. Everybody now go to number 18 in My Items, 18 in My Items. This is from the latest Juno close flyby of Ganymede a few, uh, about a year ago. Look at the detail in both black and white and color. The colors are spectral. The appearance is almost pristine, I wish we had better spacecraft orbiting Ganymede and or Jupiter, but when we all get there someday, unless they realize it early on, it's going to be one hell of a surprise because, Ron, this is an yeah. almost perfect dome with perfect geometry, unlike the moon, which has been to hell and back because of the inner solar system erosion from the war in our model. Yeah, that's very clear. Look that at one. that. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. That's astonishing. That should not be. Barbara, that's not ice, okay? <laughs> well, apparently
1: they <laughs> have
7: gunpowder to destroy the dome on the moon.
0: Okay. We have, <laughs> uh, we have unfortunately, uh, only about 10 seconds. So what we'll do is we'll simply say that my panelists will be back at some future time. Um, maybe next week, maybe not. And we will let everybody know. Tomorrow night, what we're going to do is we're going to take a dive into what happens when the first time in American history, you actually indict, criminally indict a president of the United States. I know this is an incredibly um, dangerous minefield politically. We are going to venture boldly where someone has gone before. And so tomorrow night, we're going to talk about what happens when you indict a president. So until then, same time, same bad channel. Remember, third star on the left and straight on till morning. So tomorrow night, guys. See you then.